Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is Tuesday, January 10th. We are here live. It is time for the Power Hour. We're going to open up phone lines right now. Probably want to jump in and start dialing. Looks like calls are already starting to come in. Uh, we have a partial team with us from the Pits- from Pittsburgh Power today. Uh, I think we might be missing Bruce. So looks like it's going to be uh, myself and Pete and Leroy. I think we can handle it. So if you have a question, a comment, a topic, anything you want to talk about that is about maintenance, we'll talk about it. Engines, performance, fuel mileage, modifications, upgrades, troubleshooting, emissions, electronics, you name it, we'll tackle it. All you have to do is pick up the phone and join us. Those lines are open. Jump in, 855-950-3835. All right, let's... uh, Let's find out what's going on this morning. Pete, good morning. Morning, Kevin. How are you today? Good. What's new and exciting in your world? What's, uh, I don't remember Bruce putting in for a day off. I don't think I approved that. I was going to bring that up. I don't think, I mean, he told me, but I don't think he checked it out with you. Yeah, he did. Definitely not approved. I think he's going to get demerits or something. Right. Yeah, we're doing uh, evaluation um, this morning this week so we need to uh pull him in your office and talk to him about it via reprimand there you go that's right maybe we should make it effective and do it on air yeah Yeah, good idea little little good idea (laughs) yeah good idea so what's uh what's new and exciting in your world this week so i was going to talk about liner protrusion i had a customer call up with a about a cat engine a cat reman uh, to put in his truck to update it. And I believe the cat remans are now using new blocks because of course there's no good use blocks anymore. And he had a slight oil leak underneath the head gasket, which some of them will do. And at one time cats fix for it was basically some uh, epoxy it put around it, basically a band aid. Um, surprisingly, they, they fixed it under warranty. They had the head off. They filled out the liner protrusion sheet that they have with the um, the liner protrusion. Now, they had the head back on it before he got to the sheet, and it, it looks bad, um, the liner protrusion. So he sent it to me, and I'm like, what do you think? Like, it looks like it's out of spec. Uh, it's down to one and a half thousandths. So the line of protrusion is how high the liner sticks above the deck of the block. And not only was it low, um, you check four spots on one liner. It was out uh, up to two thousands that way as well. And just for a new engine, it was horrible. Now, if this engine had 700 or 800,000 miles on it, you'd say, okay, that's, that's just what it is. But this right. is a engine from this low. So I forgot, you know, I'm going to look into these specs. I don't know cat like I do the Cummins. Not only enough, it was within spec. So on a, on a C15 cat, the minimum is one thousandths above the deck. The maximum is six. The, we'll call it out of round on, on one liner. You know, we check it for spot. 
you're allowed up to two thousandths difference. So it can angle one side or the other two thousandths, which is a lot. And the total between, say, number one and number six can be four thousandths difference, which I was shocked at that. Well, we know what like minimum spec is like, you know, for everything. Yeah. It's yeah. basically failed, but yeah. And so I decided to look up the other engines, um, what they are. So NTCs, N14s, uh, four to seven, um, out of round, we'll call it, or from, you know, underneath one liner, uh, Cummins is at a thousand. So they hold your tolerance a little tighter and underneath one head, because there's, there's three heads on an NTC and N14, uh, it cannot be more than a thousand and a half different. So if you're at six on one, you can't be any less than four and a half and still be within spec. And I also found out as I'm looking this up, Detroit for the older D-Deck threes, fours and fives had changed theirs. Uh, their spec was zero to three and they bumped it up to half a thousandth to three to uh, prevent blown head gaskets. And, and you can see why we see a lot of cats with blown head gaskets. That's kind of spec. I mean, if you're a Detroit tech, you're going to write it down and see, okay, it's in spec and it just gets sent down the road. Right. Yeah. I was going to ask if rent. this is, it seems to me like the calls we've had over the years, because what happens later on with an engine, we might be talking about a blown head gasket. It just seems like this call when we get it, um, just off the top of my head, I would say probably like 70 some percent cats. It seems so common with cats. I very seldom ever hear this with like a, a Detroit. It just doesn't seem very common at all. No. And we know like the older, and I don't know about the DD platform, but the DDX three, fours and fives, we see a lot that come in. at so it comes in for a rebuild. We just checked the protrusion while we're tearing apart. And they're at zero and have no problems. Yeah. At, at all. Which is, but again, that's just a durable engine. And the, um, ISX engine. So I checked the spec on that one and it's, it's seven to 12. And now they have a mid stop liner. So the liner is the ledge is lower in the block where it's a little meatier. It's not up top where the counter bore is, which is a little more, more prone to abuse. That's why Cummins moved it down that way. And, and we don't see much problems there that the liner protrusions, they all drop, you know, they're never going to get higher, but we don't see much problems with the ISX. Yeah, I, I, other engines. I don't really get those kind of calls either. I mean, it's it just so common when you hear, you know, the call is, well, my, you know, I've got pressure in the radiator or, you know, all the symptoms we hear of a blown head gasket, and it's almost always a cat. And, and they don't have a counterbore. So unlike the N14 or the ISX, um, even the X3s and 4s, there's a ledge, a counterbore. On a cat, you're sitting on top of the block. And on a, uh, you know, a remand engine, that should be perfect. So I, I don't, I'm shocked that not only is it low, but it's you know, between one, let's say number one, A, B, C, and D is so far off. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. If they decked it properly, it should be just spot on. And it's not. Now, there are a couple 
so when line protrusions load, generally one of the fixes is actually pull the liner, um, cut the counterbore for a shim. And if you're using a 20,000 shim, um, you'd cut to a certain depth so you get the protrusion you want. Now on Caterpillar, they make a thinner deck plate. It's about 3,000 thinner. So if on this truck, had they had the standard deck plate in there, if they would have put the 3,000 thinner, they would have brought the protrusion up to you know a much more respectable level. Right. So, and a relatively easy. But again, because it's in spec, as far as they're concerned, they weren't going to touch it. Yeah, boy, that that uh, that whole factory spec thing we talk about it all the time. It really causes a lot of problems on on different things. I mean, not just this issue. We've talked about it on other issues where that spec is just so loose that if you start to get near the extremes, you're going to have problems. Mm-hmm. So when we cut counterbores here, we always like on the ISXs we shoot for ten. Uh, we have good luck there. Uh, NTCs and 14s, when I cut, I kept it at six to seven. Now, one advantage we had here is we had the tools to cut it. So, and a couple different size shims. So there's no reason why I couldn't get one out of the shop here at six to seven. You know, um, a lot of guys that do their own rebuilds don't have that. So they're going to have to accept where it's at. Right. Without having the equipment. Oh, Cummins had a nice thing. They, they actually have... Uh, for the NTCs and 14s, they make a shim that go on top of the liner. So if your protrusion, say, is at four and a half, which is in spec, and even, you can throw these little 2,000 shims on top of it, and now it brings it up to six and a half. It sounded like a Band-Aid the first time I, I read about it. Cummins had I'm like, this just can't work, but it, it does. It, it is, I've used them, and it's trouble-free. It is really a, a convenient repair that's definitely cost-effective. So you're pulling the heads off because maybe you have injector tubes bad. Check the protrusion, find out they're low, and you put these shims in there. You just brought them up to you know the high side of spec, and you're good to go again. It's a really good repair. Good. Good. That's good to know. And the other thing about this guy, too, is this is all happening uh, and it only has 81,000 miles on the engine and they still won't do anything about it. Whoa. Really? 80,000. Oh. And there was too, if he wanted, he could buy an extended warranty. Oh, great. So give them more money for a job they didn't do right. Yeah. Yeah. They, they said, just put a, they just put a new head gasket in and said, run it till it goes bad again. Hopefully it's still under warranty. Oh, nice. And again, if they would, thinner plate in there. And those plates are like 400 bucks. I mean, at that point, I'm sure the customer would have said, I'll pay for that plate. Right. You know, yeah. at that point, 3000 is a big difference. You're really on the good side of things and you shouldn't have any problems. Yeah. And I didn't even give them that. I'd be okay paying 400 bucks for something that actually fixes the problem rather, rather than a couple thousand for an extended warranty that I'm going to have to fight over when something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. All right. And it's a problem with dealerships. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right. Good stuff. Pete, you got anything else? Uh, that is it for me. All right. Leroy, what's on your mind today? So um, I wanted to sort of address something I saw online on a forum. I can't remember where I saw it, 
It wasn't on Facebook. I think it was on a forum. But anyway, they were talking about DPF cleaning and this, there was a specific comment that said, um, putting a DPF filter in an ultrasonic cleaner will wash out the precious metals and will ruin your filter. Now, there's a few things wrong with this statement and not to sound entirely pedantic, but the precious metals that they're talking about are in the DOC, not in the DPF. The DPF is really just um, a monolithic substrate. And by monolithic, I just mean it started off as um, a whole piece and they just carved out like like a statue. Starts out as just like a block of marble and you just carve the statue out of it. The DPF filter... The filter inside is the same way. It starts off as a hunk of ceramic or whatever that it is, and they put the holes and things in it, right? There's really not too much to it. All the sort of precious metals and things like that are in the DOC part, the diesel oxidation catalyst, okay, which is used as a heat-up. It's meant when fuel lands on it, it heats up and burns the soot off. So the other thing is, you can destroy like a DOC filter by putting it in an ultrasonic cleaner, but it's when you do it too long. So we've, well, not we, but DPF alternative have come up with the right time of how long to put it in an ultrasonic cleaner. So I'm not saying you can just take your DOC out and throw it in an ultrasonic cleaner and just come back in the morning. It, right. There has to be, you can only do it so long. And when you, Blow it back out. You have to be careful when you air nice it, and you also have to be careful when you put it back in and to dry the thing out. There's a certain procedure for all this stuff, and if you kind of don't go within the procedure, you can cause damage. But I sort of saw that out there where people are saying, you can't do this to your filter and things like that, yeah. and it's, it's really just untrue. You just have to do it correctly, which is like a lot of things. If you're, you know, you can do it wrong <laughs> and destroy something, but... Yeah. If you follow the right procedure, then there's no harm in it. So are are you saying that you can't always trust everything you read online? Yeah, it's weird. I know. It's a new discovery. I- that's Yeah, that's kind of shocking. Uh, you know, I, I went through the, the DPF alternatives process you guys have there, uh, and I was thoroughly impressed. Um, the knowledge, how much they knew, all the different processes and steps and how technical each one was. And I mean, it was a really incredible process they go through. Uh, it, it's, you know, you call it DPF cleaning, but it was significantly more than that. It's, you know, everything's inspected, brought back to specs. It's really a very thorough process. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure I would trust that more than what I read online. I mean, and even if you go to Detroit Diesel's website, when they talk about DPF cleanings, they're pretty specific about what they like and what they don't like. And one of the things they don't like is what a lot of people just say is just, you know, blow them out right. and then just bake them. Detroit doesn't like that. They say, in their words, we have a Detroit proprietary, you know, liquid clean thermal method and with air it's like thermal slash air slash liquid clean which you know i'm just like they it's not they're not afraid to ultrasonic clean it and it sounds like we're probably doing the process that the oems would recommend so yeah um, exactly all right they won't say it but i think the same thing 
But yeah, that's uh, what I had for today. All right. Well, an easy start. We don't have Bruce with us today. I really don't have anything. So we should get to some phone calls. We have plenty of lines open. You'll want to jump in now while you've got a chance. 855-950-3835. It's time to find out what's on your mind today. Pick up the phone and join us. We're going to get started in Ohio. Herschel, welcome to the program. Hey, guys. How you doing? Good. Damn it, Kevin, I did it again. <laughs> I did it again. Um, BPF filters, kind of funny Leroy would talk about that because that's kind of what I want to talk about. You, you must be psycho. <laughs> I mean, psychic. Well, well, yeah. <laughs> well, judging my call a couple of weeks ago, I might be. <laughs> um, I, I, I'll give you my... Regular, I would say regular Joe, but I don't want to use that name. I wonder why. <laughs> regular guy, <laughs> my regular guy understanding of what DPF is and how it works. I called and talked to the DPF alternative side at Pittsburgh Power, and the guy said he had to do some checking to see what they can do for a D13 Volvo, and I never did hear back. But if I understand it right, Pretend you have three one-pound coffee cans laying on their side on the table. The first one is the DOC where the diesel fuel is sprayed. The second one is the filter, the DPF. It catches all the junk. And then the third one is the one where the urea or DEF is sprayed. So when the exhaust goes out the pipe, seagulls don't get a headache. Is that kind of what's happening? And I've also heard of baking a DPF. And then the DPF alternative, when he was talking about that, sounds like there's some kind of a liquid solution. I'm sure DPF alternative version is better. But can you tell me why it's better and what they can do? Do you guys actually remove the filters, take everything apart and do it all? When I talked to, I actually talked to a DPF alternative dealer, and he said, no, you got to take it down, bring it to take anything apart. Said, well, that's not doing me any good. I mean, I'll start taking off bolts. It'll fall on the ground eventually, but I don't know how to put it back together. <laughs> what can you tell me? Well, we, we have done D13s here as far as the DPF cleaning. I mean, that's... Okay. So, really, the, the process is you, you have to remove the ash that is built up inside the DPF filter. So your, your coffee can analogy is, is sort of correct in the way that they're all cans, but they all don't collect things like a coffee can would, right? Okay. So if we just talk about the DPF filter, um, it, all right, let, me, let me back up here. So <laughs> the first can, the DOC, is used to heat up the DPF filter to a temperature which will oxidize or break down soot particles, right? So there's really, the DOC doesn't catch anything. It doesn't hold anything. It's not supposed to. It is supposed to just right. cause a reaction with fuel that basically burns it so it can provide a temperature high enough to oxidize soot, which is around, I think, 
800 or 1,000 degrees, something like that, right? You can't get now, is that where the it, Go ahead. Is that where the diesel fuel is sprayed into so it will burn? Yeah, so diesel fuel is either sprayed through a injector, a standalone injector, sometimes called a seventh injector, or the engine itself will run a rich, a rich mixture, which will mean more fuel than air. So then fuel will come out uh, the exhaust and then land on the face of the DOC. So if you think about pyrometer temperature, if it takes a thousand degrees to break down soot, that means it has to be a thousand degrees, like four or five feet away from the turbo. Now, if you put a pyro there, it's going to be pretty cool. And no matter how hard you run that engine, you're never going to get that sort of temperature. That's why you need a DOC or a heat up catalyst. We have to spray fuel on it in order to get it to make a flame or not necessarily a flame, but enough heat. So in your analogy, you could say it's like a coffee can that has, you know, kerosene in the bottom of it, right? Or, or diesel fuel and you make a flame out of it. So the soot that is collected in the DPF filter, the next coffee can, it builds up in there over time and the ECM or the after treatment control module can see the pressure difference between the input of the DPF and the output of it. Based on this number, it can see how full it is, right? Uh, it's okay. sort of just like you had a straw and you slowly fill it up. You could say there's more pressure from your mouth than coming out of it. You could, you know, when you blow into something that's plugged, that's how it usually is. So when it, so it builds up in the DPF filter and you get enough temperature to burn it off, it breaks down the soot and the um, oil additives from the, well, it doesn't really break down the oil additives, but whatever gets collected in the DPF, it breaks it down. And then it gets passed off the SCR. So before we go off the SCR thing, we, we have to think about what ash is. So ash really, the majority of ash is actually additives from like lubricant or like fuel additives because those don't oxidize at that sort of temperature. So you have things like uh, oil additives like zinc and the ZDDP, um, things like that. That's mostly what is sort of getting built up in the filter over time. And there is some soot, some part of the soot that doesn't break down that turns into ash, but it's a small percentage. So you have that built up over time in the DPF. So you can't clean that out by any sort of regen or anything that the truck can do. So you physically have to remove it from the truck, take it somewhere, and have that ash removed physically. So does that make sense so far? So far, so good. Okay. I'm, I'm listening. I got a couple follow-up, but keep going. So that's that process of cleaning. The last step is, or the last coffee can is um, the SCR catalyst. Now, again, it's a catalyst like the DOC, which means it doesn't collect anything. It's not really a coffee can. It's sort of a place where a reaction will happen and it'll break down NOx into N2 and oxygen. So in order for that reaction to happen, like, the, like a DOC needs fuel to cause a reaction, an SCR needs urea to cause a reaction. So your urea is sprayed or defluid is sprayed into the exhaust. It lands in the face of the SCR. And from there, it can cause a reaction that breaks down the emission pollutants into something that, um, you know, is not harmful to the atmosphere like nitrogen and oxygen. That is sort of the last step of the after treatment process. So when you say they're sort of like coffee cans, the only one that's really collects anything is the DPF 
the other two cans just are there for reactions. Okay. So the SCR and the DOC, those sides of the system really don't require a cleaning and air quote, just the DPF does. Just the DPF require a cleaning. Now, if you had something happen to the engine where you had a bunch of oil come down, you may be able to clean the DOC and save it because if you get a DOC that's face plugged with uh, coolant or oil or something like that or whatever it is, you may be able to save it by cleaning it, but it's not on any sort of interval. If you look up any sort of OEM uh, reuse guidelines or anything like that, they don't say you need to clean the SER or the DP or the DOC. It's really just the DPF that is required to be cleaned at an interval. Okay. Well, this one yesterday, the first time I've ever noticed it doing it, was doing a regen while driving. <clears throat> I stopped at a red light, and there's a little light that comes on to tell you that it's doing it. Uh, why is this thing acting so weird? Well, coolant temperature stayed kind of where it always does, but my EGT gauge, instead of running where it normally does, it was running about 200 degrees higher than it normally does going down the road. And I haul the same loads every day, so it's not like there's anything different. On the same road, and my instant read MPG just tanked while it was doing this. And it did it for about an hour. Well, now today, because I always reset my instant read every time I fill up, just like for fun, just to see how high I can get it. Well, now today it's not doing that. And my instant read is averaging and it's climbing and climbing and climbing. I thought, the mad thing's got to be doing a regen while I'm driving or it wouldn't be acting this way. Right. So it sounds like you had a driving regen, which right. yeah, is going to tank your fuel mileage because it needs to make heat um, to, to even get the DOC to light off. So the other part that I didn't mention is when you spray fuel on the face of a DOC, it just doesn't make heat. It has to have a certain ignition temperature for it to go off. So that's right. why the engine has to either... Well, I guess in your case, you don't have a VGT, but like a Cummins would close a VGT. It has an inlet throttle that can close. Um, they can. Oh, this has a VGT turbo. Oh, yours is the VGT one? Okay, it must be a little bit yeah. older. Yeah, it's an 18. It can do that. It can do um, things such as uh, put post-injection in. It can retard the timing. It does a lot of things to basically make exhaust temp. Um the other thing that wastes a lot of fuel, this is a little bit of a side topic, is in order for that reaction to work in the SER, the exhaust has to be a certain temperature as well. So the engine will also waste fuel just to heat up the SCR in order for it to treat the NOx into something smaller. Interesting. So this one on the dash, when you go to it, it has a, they call it EATS. EATS system, mm -hmm. and basically all it is is a gauge, kind of like a thermometer laid on its side, and the old thermometer where you had the little red line of mercury where you could see how hot you was when you had a fever. Mm -hmm. This one right now says soot level is, it is right at about a quarter of the way up, so it's nowhere near a problem yet. How high, right. I wonder, do I go before I need to call you up and say, hey, Leroy, I need a cleaning. And when I do, well, 
Go ahead. The, the, the soot gauge, if that's what we can call it, the soot gauge, the, the truck should take care of it by itself. There should be no reason to bring it in just to clean it for soot. That's the purpose of a regen and why the truck can either do a parked one or a driving one. So we really ah. need to bring it in at an interval to clean the ash out, not necessarily the soot. Oh, okay. Now, one more side note. Oh, I was just say one more side note about the DOC is when we do the cleaning at DPF Alternative. I mean, we we do clean those as well, um, but it's not at the, the it's not required by the OEMs. But we do it because there is soot and other things that get built up in there. So it's just sort of a little bit of the extra step. Okay, this this truck right now is five hundred and seventy thousand on it. When I bought it, the guy gave me the entire book of receipts since new. I couldn't find an in receipt anywhere that it had ever had a DPF cleaning. So it may never have had, or it did, and I just don't know it. So if I bring it in, do you have a ballpark guess? Obviously, if you find broken clamps that need to be replaced, that's going to be more, those kind of things. But do you have a basic guess with this D13 dollar-wise what it's going to be so I know how many pictures of dead presidents I need? So it's going to be the cost of the cleaning. Um, so if we do the cleaning and, and you are running the catalyst, there's a guarantee yes, that cleaned again, it will be free. And I, I think it's four ninety nine for that. And then our labor to pull them off, put them back on clamps and gaskets. So, you know, you're probably looking all said and done, you know, around a thousand bucks or a little less for everything. That's not too bad. Is this a two-hour job or a two-day job? I'm okay, so it doesn't take long to get it off. So you'd be here two days. And the reason is the DPFs come off and take it next door. They're cleaned. And then at end of the day, we throw all the DPFs in the kiln and they bake overnight. And then they have to cool off and then we put them back on. So, I mean, your truck's going to be here two days. Obviously, we're not working on it straight for two days. It's sitting quite a bit but you will have to be here overnight for that. Okay, so the DPF alternative still is a baking, but it sounds like there's some kind of a liquid washing that goes on as well with it? Well, yes, yeah, so, you know, the, the basic cleaning is a, a bake and blow, which is your basic, they, they heat them up and, and blow them out, and that's the end of it. Um, ours are washed, and then we also have the ultrasonic cleaner to just go further to ensure that they're clean when we're done. Yeah, you have to go through a thermal cycle to get all the water and everything out of it. So, Interesting. How much lead time should I give when I decide that I'm ready to come over and have you do this? So the shop, I mean, we're starting to get caught up. And again, that's easier to get you in for that because, you know, guys can be on it for an hour or two, you know, get them off and it just sits there. So I would say a couple weeks notice should be enough. Okay. And okay. this goes back to on, and I don't know about the Volvo, but I know Detroit and Cummins, they actually have a mileage recommendation to have them cleaned. Um, and, and it is based on fuel mileage. The lower the fuel mileage, the sooner they want them cleaned. 
I think on the X-15s, they were, what, between 200 and 300,000 miles. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I think the minimum spec I've ever seen is 150,000, and probably the most I've seen is like 450. And and fuel mileage-wise, I'm at 8.25 lifetime, even though I've only driven it a couple of months, because one of its months is set in the shop for a spun cam lobe. But anyway, so it's not doing bad on MPG, that's for sure. I, I I tell everyone usually 200 to 250, not necessarily because that follows any sort of OEM guideline, but it's always sort of good to get it in and have things checked over uh, to maybe catch something like a broken wire or maybe I see a lot in the Volvos where um, there's a flex pipe after the urea doser and we see a lot of buildup there of uh, like crystallized urea. So we can kind of catch that stuff early. And that's all part of when you do this service, that's what you do. You're looking for those kind of problems, the broken wires and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, because you're in there, you're tearing everything apart. And, you know, sometimes people will come grab me on a simple DPF cleaning and say, hey, what's this all about? I'm like, oh, well, that doesn't look good. We should get in there and take care of that. So, okay. All right. I, you're doing a general inspection while doing it then. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right, well, i got to get past January 15th estimated tax payment. Oh, my God. And uh, get past that pile up a little bit more, and I'll give you a call. <laughs> All right, sounds good. There you go. All right, guys, thanks. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. Let's head off to South Dakota this time. Chad, welcome to the program. Hey, guys. Uh Thanks. You already answered a bunch of the questions that I had in that last call, which is good. When I had this truck in your shop 195,000 miles ago, it was at 3.5% ash load. And now it's up there saying it needs to be clean, approaching 100%. So that 195,000 would fall somewhere in that range that you just mentioned, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. And then the second thing that you answered was the gauge on the dash says that the dpf is clean um but that's that's the soot versus the ash load again correct right yes okay so this is a 2016 579 with the next 15 so it's in the passenger step where it's stacked up and down i guess uh the dpf on top in the interest of saving time i bought the the cummins dpf kit was going to replace that this last weekend uh that kit and then I was just going to take the DPF off. Assuming it was in good condition, I would just have that cleaned and have another one. Um, kind of falls right in line with Pete's pricing there, I think, with what he was saying. Now, this that wouldn't include the cleaning, but the cost of the kit was 2500 bucks with the DPF. Well, if I was going to spend $1,000 in your shop, but I would save two days and I could keep working, that would have made sense on my end. What I found when I took everything apart... Um, was on the inlet cap of the DOC. It's got got those one-inch welds around it. One of those welds is cracked open a little bit, and I've got an exhaust leak up there. Mm. So I didn't go any further. My thinking was, well, I'm not going to take it apart until I until I get a DOC and have it in hand. Found out that DOC is six thousand dollars. Yeah, because so, it actually had like platinum and other sort of you know, hard to get metals on it. That's why they're so much more expensive. Yeah. So what my thinking was is, well, now it's worth it to take it apart and at least see what condition it's in 
before spending the $6,000. And once I get that apart, assuming, well, hoping, I guess, that, um, that everything inside there is not cracked and not being pushed out, you know, hasn't built up too much pressure to move that. Can I just re-weld that seam? Um, I think the technical answer is probably no, but I don't, I don't <laughs> see why not. I yeah, I'm not getting, say that again, Pete. It buys some time. I mean, it might not last another six years or four years, but if you get another year or two out of it, why not? I mean, it's broken anyway. You, you, you're not losing lose. anything by at least trying. Yeah. Okay. And that's what I wanted to see was the condition inside there. You know, if everything's broke apart and starting to push out, well, obviously. Um, but at the same time, it's doing the work properly in whatever condition it's in. So I thought at $6,000, well, I'll take it apart and weld it up and at least see what it looks like first. Yeah. And aside from the, you know, from the face plugging and stuff on the inlet side, is there anything else I should be cleaning out of that DOC while I've got it apart? Is there anything else you should clean out of it, you mean? Well, I'm, and I'm not suggesting just pressure washing with high pressure, but should I be, you know, should I rinse it in the opposite direction? Uh, eh, I don't know what Steve's process is over there or not. I, I think he does everything in the reverse process, in the reverse flow. Right. I don't know if it's just air or if he also does uh, any sort of liquid. I, I actually don't know that one. Okay. But I just know it's reverse flow. Okay. What, uh, so I know they're all a little unique in their setup, but what's the third section, like you were just talking about, but it'd be, it'd be in the top can, it'd be in after the DPF, and then it's got an outlet, and it goes down to the SCR. Is that last can on the top stack, is that just an empty canister then? No, the right last after the last step in any SCR system, well, as of today, is the SCR. So yeah. if you follow the tailpipe backwards, the first can you run into is going to be the SCR. Right, right. I'm saying if you take off where the DPF is itself, when you break that apart, that's going to go into three sections. You've got you your DOC, DOC, then the DPF, and then the last section has the outlet on it going down leading to the SCR can, which would be below it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just the DOC I, and DPF, yeah. It's just empty is what I'm guessing. But because I know there's a there's a V-band clamp and there's going to be a gasket in there as well. Mm. Right. But anyway, I appreciate you guys. That was uh, that answers my questions for today. Perfect. All, All right. right. Thanks for the call. Let's go to Pennsylvania this time. John, welcome to the program. Hey, guys. I was uh, <clears throat> calling. I have a 07 Kenworth W900, and I've been fighting a vibration for like two years in it, and I just spent so much money. I'm about done with it. And what I'm thinking about doing is buying a cutoff and putting a bit different back end on it. And the rears that I have right now are 325s. And all the cutoffs I'm looking at are 308s or 336s. So I'm wondering if how much of it, is that okay to do either of those? Is one better than the other? Or what's well, going to happen there? Are you doing this cutoff to try to address the vibration? Yes. Well, yes, but the truck has 1.3 million miles and the rear ends are original. 
and they just told me now that the spindles should be replaced, but the center of the rear housings are rusted bad. So I don't, and, and to replace the housings, they're six grand a piece. So to I do all that, I think I could buy a cutoff that's like one year old with less than a hundred thousand miles on it for around the same price, and then everything would be new back there. Got it. Oh, oh. It just seems like, have we identified where the vibration is coming from? Well, I did the, uh, so I went to two different shops. The last one, they had that Eaton DVA tool where they put the sensors all over and we run it. And we've done that twice. And both times they tell me it's a wheel end in the back. And then what we did was we jacked the back up, pulled all the axles out and put caps on them. And then they used, I think it's a hunter tool to spin the wheel individually. And we spun the wheels. And when you spin them back wheels and you sit in the driver's seat, the truck shakes pretty good. But, I mean, I replaced everything back there. I don't understand why it keeps doing that, and I don't want to keep putting money at it. Last year, I spent 21000 on it, and nothing changed. You know, I, I know this sounds crazy, but has somebody just centered the wheels and brake drums? Yes, yes. I replaced the rims, the tires. They, they did a true balance. The last time, I put all new hubs on the truck. Wow. Drive you know, line's the, been done. The, the only thing I'm afraid of is until you identify for sure where this is coming from, you could just end up with the same problem after doing all this work. Well, I know that, but I figured even if that does happen, I still have everything new back there and I'm going to keep the truck. So it wouldn't be like so, a total loss. So what are the total miles on the truck? 1.3. Yeah, I guess it's not a horrible thing. I mean, most of the time differentials and rear ends last a really long time, but I guess, you know, it's not horrible. 1.3, you got plenty of use out of the components. I, I, like I said, I'm just afraid you do all this, you still have the problem until we identify what it is. Yeah. I know. But that, and if I did that and I still do have it, I feel like that would eliminate the back end of the truck. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I can't think of really replacing everything that could cause the problem from the two rear axles. So I guess that's one way of looking at it. Anybody else have any thoughts? Yeah, And then you had a question on gearing, right? I guess we should answer that. Yeah, they're, they're, they're 325s now. So most of these back ends are 308s or 336s. And is that like going to be an issue or not, do you think? Well, it can be. I mean, anytime we change gearing, we want to make sure we're going in the right direction, but we need to know a lot of other things. What, what year and what engine? It's uh, the A-Cert 07. It's an 07 A-Cert. All right. What uh, transmission? 18 speed. And how fast do you like to drive most of the time? Oh, uh, like 70, 72. Usually I'm at 1,400 RPM, 14.2. And that's with right 325s? Now. Yeah, low, low, 22.5 low pro tires. I mean, there's a couple options here. For me, if I'm going to spend all this money to replace rear ends, I want to go all the way down to a gear I can run in direct. I want to pick up an advantage here. Right, but how do you do that with the route I'm trying to take here? Um, with that engine, I don't see why we couldn't. A 
264 is a really popular ratio. 72 is kind of pushing that indirect a little bit. Um, might have to go to like a 250 range somewhere if we can find them. To, well, you're going to do cutoffs, so we can go look for anything we want. I mean, it's not like we're limited to what's going to fit yeah. in your housing. Sometimes that's an issue. We can only get so many gear sets for some housings. But in this case, we can look for anything we want. I mean, we're not limited on manufacturer well, year or anything. We're just going to put all new um, housings and everything in there. So um, how much weight do you pull? Are you are we going to have any startability issues? Are you pulling really heavy weights out of tough docks or anything? No, 80,000 80, most gross. Okay. So, you know, I'm pretty comfortable. But if I, down if I to, get the cutoff, it's not going to have those rears. What's that? The, the, the cutoff that I buy for the truck is probably going to come with a 308 or a 336. Well, what, but wait, if I can wait. choose, I'm wondering which one I should choose. Well, wait. What, why are you saying that's your only option are those two gear ratios? If you're buying cutoffs, we can go look for anything. Because, uh, so my uncle, he's always buying smash trucks and he's redoing them and building stuff. And what he's looking for right now is a Peterbilt that is roughly one year old, with less than a hundred thousand miles. And he said, he'd sell me the back end off it, which would be a low leaf suspension. And most of them usually have a 308 or 336 that I've See. seen. See, I, I, I would take a different approach at this. You might save a little bit of money by buying this from your uncle, but you're spending thousands of dollars and a lot of labor, and you're already compromising. I, I, I would not do that. If I'm going to spend this much money, I'm going to come out with a truck exactly the way I want it, not just saying these, because honestly, the two ratios you're giving me, we pick up zero advantages here. It gets us nothing. Yeah, I'm not looking for an advantage. I'm just trying to get rid of the vibration, what? and I'm wondering but, what... But hold on. If you're going to spend this money and we know we could improve your driveline, why not do it? I, a lot of times I get people who call here who want to change their gear ratios, and I tell them, no, it's too expensive. If that's all we're going to get out of this is a new ratio, it doesn't make sense in your case. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Here, we're already committed to spending the money to change differentials. Let's get the perfect gear, not just a gear. I, I, I know what you're saying, and I agree with you, but that's, uh, I don't know how to explain it, but that's not what I'm going to do. Okay. Well, that's all you have to tell me. I, like, I don't I, want I have, to do that. I mean, yeah, if we like, don't want to talk about it, just say, I, I don't want to do that. I don't care. Yeah, I, I don't want to do that. I don't, okay. Not to, then, I definitely then, value your opinion. I know, I know you're right, but... So then if you've got 325s now and we go to 336s, I think you're pushing the RPMs too much on 336s at 72 miles an hour. So <clears throat> we'd play around with the 308s possible we might be able to make that work in 17th or i mean a lot of times it is going to work in 18th it, that will bring your rpms down to a better place for that engine anyway so if this is the case we're going to have to pick from those two i would go with the 308s 308s 
So he's at fourteen hundred at seventy two now. So if he wants to continue at that speed, he probably would be okay in seventeenth instead of eighteenth. That's uh, with three oh eight. I'm thinking that's going to work out really close, and then. He could run that truck in 18th when he's light or on the level and, and really bring the RPMs down. How, how low, like, where do you think optimal RPMs are for this motor? It, you know, I wouldn't run that thing less than 1,200, but when you're not under a heavy load, 12 to 1,250, that engine will do just fine. Okay. Yeah, I, I thought 14 was pretty good. Yeah, so you're probably going to play around, you know, you're, you're going to do some shifting between 17th and 18th. You're going to do more shifting than you used to, but it should give you a fuel mileage advantage. Okay. And one more, if the uh, cutoff has disc brakes, is that an issue? Is that just like the change in it? still cutting the airline a different airline or do they work totally different to swap the disc brakes on the cutoff uh i'll throw a guess out there but i can't say that i know this for sure i don't think there are any issues since you're doing full cutoffs you know i think trying to convert yeah. any other axle to disc brakes is a just a bad idea if it's even possible but you're you're buying entire axles so i i don't think that's an issue at all does anybody else know I got no idea on that one. Yeah. I, I was I'm hoping just, I could just cut all my lines and put unions in and it would work the way it's supposed to work. I, I, I think that's the case, but I don't know that for sure. Okay. Somebody may call us and, or send me a uh, message and let it. me know. Yeah. And what, uh, just in case for some reason I do come across, what, what would be your recommendation when we talked about different gears and different suspension? What would you look for? Uh, well, suspensions, I, I, you know, don't have a huge preference. It seems like pack cars, the one with all the weird uh, suspension setups, and I'm not all that familiar with them and which ones are better for different operations so for me i focus more on the gears the suspension is you know it is what it is most of the time like i said other than the pack car stuff but um, i i would be focused on gear ratios and based on your operation i think we'd have to find something in the 250 range if we wanted to run indirect okay. which is that's when we pick up an advantage when we can run indirect right right i understand so if something comes a lot, 264 right, might work. It, we'd be pushing the RPM range a little bit when you're up at uh, 72. But that would still, you know, I would do that and then slow down a little bit to make up for it. But, uh, you know, it, it's possible we could pick up like a half mile per gallon if we did this right. Okay. Hopefully it fixes the You know, for, for me, ideally, it would be 264s and then slow down a little bit to make it work rather than go try to find yeah. a higher gear ratio and then end up with some startability issues. Um, and like I said, if you do both of those things, you, you might end up in that half mile per gallon range as a gain. And, you know, now you're talking about several thousand dollars a year in fuel cost. Yeah. 
year after year after year. All right. All right. All right. That's all I got. All right. That's all we need. Thanks for the call. Thank you. Let's go to Massachusetts. Chris, welcome to the program. Hey, guys. Uh, back on December 6th, my issue was brought up on your show. Leroy had called me privately that morning <clears throat> regarding my brakes locking up. I got a 19 Cascadia, half a million miles. It's, uh, I literally just left the shop again. They have replaced traction protection valve, quality control valve, the footprint valve, and the push knob valve on the dash. Brand new, replaced. Problem's still there. Uh, I'm going to get a loaner truck right now, but they, uh, they're stumped, and they've escalated it to um, higher levels of Freightliner because this clearly is a problem that uh, I, nobody can seem to figure out. And I'm just wondering, is there anybody out there, even listeners, who have ever had this problem? It's only when I go to a trailer, it happens after maybe half an hour, the brake pedal becomes hard, and you start to feel resistance. And then eventually, like, if I stop, you know, say I stop in a parking lot or whatever, basically the truck and trailer brakes completely lock up. And I, that's, the, that's the gist of the story. Yeah, so at some point you're saying you hook up to a trailer and at some time period later, if you stop the and you try to move again, the brakes are locked and you have verified it's both tractor and trailer brakes that are locked at that point. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, but the resistance will begin before that. Right. It, it will slowly, the, the brake pedal starts to get mushy, and it gets hard. And I know at that point, after just happening four or five times, and uh, that I know once that brake pedal becomes really hard, that as soon as I stop completely, it will completely lock up, and then I can't move. So, but, um, but when you're driving... It, and and, and your it's f- only with, when I pull a trailer... When you're driving and you feel this drag start to come on and the pedal gets hard, have you ever gone out and shot things with a temp gun? No. Something should I, be getting very hot. Brake. I mean, and and, and that may so, be a way to figure out if it's every brake position or. Uh, but it would seem to me like if we truly have brakes well, dragging like that, things are going to get really hot. Well, y- yes, and I, you know, in the times where it's happened, I have, you know, got off, you know, the road quickly when I started to realize it, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I don't want, you know, the, the brakes and the drums to, to get destroyed. But I, well, they, you could have a fire. You could have a fire as oh, well. No, absolutely. Things dragging no, I agree. Enough. Yeah, we could have a wheel fire. Right. Well, I, it, it's, it's been in the shop a lot, and it's now back in there as of half an hour ago. But, um... I, at this point, I, I'm getting a loaner truck, and I, I don't want it back until that thing's fixed. But so, I, I just, I'm wondering if anybody out there, even drivers listening to this show, have ever heard of this problem. And I mean, people can call me if they want. I mean, I can certainly get my number, and they can give it out if they want to call me. I, I have looked on the internet. I have called different freight liners. I used to, you know, that I've done business with so, before in years past that I trusted, and nobody has ever heard of this problem. Now, currently, the freight liner that I'm at, and they're a good shop. I like them. They, they, 
They think maybe it's something electrical, like with the hill descent or the ABS possibly. It's not coding, but they, they're, they're wondering if maybe that is an issue, right? I mean, I, I, I don't know how the air compression would be causing, but I, I'm not a mechanical person. I'm going to so, be here and there, but I'm not, you know, mechanical. So you broke up a little bit there, but I heard anything. air compressor. I, I don't think there's any way that an air compressor could cause this unless we were getting crazy high pressures or something that's getting past some sort yeah. of... Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I don't... You know, and the other thing is, is it possible that an instruction is somehow in the airlines and that it's... You know, because it doesn't happen immediately. But then, but if that was the case, why is it only doing it when I'm booked to a trailer? I can box up all day long until the cows come home and nothing happens. Well, but as soon as I hook to a trailer, that's when the problem starts to go. And that's a clue, but it's not much of a clue because when you hook to a trailer, a lot of things do change in that air system. So it, 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 it at least right. it's telling us a little bit of something. Here's my thought on this. Um, you know, I'll ask. Pete and Leroy, if they've ever heard of anything like this, I have a feeling the answer is no. Um, I haven't. If it's not something that at some point somebody says, oh, yeah, we we had a fleet that had six of those and this was the problem. And I, I don't think we're going to find that. If we can't find somebody who definitively says, yes, I've seen that before, here's the problem then what I would say is the process you've started is probably your best bet. When you can get the dealer to yeah. elevate it, now at some point you will get engineers involved who do understand how right. each system works, you know, in a lot of detail and then can say, these are the things that could cause it. I mean, I have no idea at this point what right. might be causing this. So unless, and we'll throw it out there, absolutely. Maybe we, you know, somebody's listening that will say, yep, we, we saw that and here's what it was. And that would be awesome. But if not, I, I think the process you're going through is probably your best bet. Yeah, no, I tend to agree. I just thought I'd throw it out there to the uh, listeners and see if anybody else has had something similar to this, you know, yeah. just to try to... Do whatever right. I can, you know, to help. And Pete, any any ideas? The only time I've heard of it is when this guy called me. Yeah, Matter what trailer you're you're um, hooked up to, have you tried? No, it doesn't matter. Okay. It's, it's 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 any trailer. I do drop and hook, and uh, yeah, it's it's happened so, on every single trailer since this problem. So, so what finally? What do you have to do to release the brakes? Just disconnect from the trailer? No, that's, an, and this is, this may be another clue. I'm glad you brought that up. So when the brakes lock up and I'm sitting there, I've learned that if I sit there for about an hour, hour and a half, um, eventually the brakes unlock, they just release. And, and then, but if I un, say, I, say they locked up in the, in the parking lot and I unhook from the trailer, the tractor doesn't immediately just go back to normal. It takes a while for it to to release, and even once it releases, you know it's a slow progression for it to get back to normal. 
And that may be a clue as well. I don't know. Yeah, it probably is. And again, it's probably a clue for somebody who really understands every detail of the system. I mean, it, it... it is a clue, yeah. but it's uh, this is just an odd problem. There's no doubt about it. Yes, and it's and it's been a really good truck. I've had it since it was brand new. Really good truck, but this thing is just killing me. So, um, can I ask one more question? Um, just look, this will be a quick one. And I, I know you can criticize me for not using the uh, the uh, catalyst sooner, but at half a million miles. If I start using the catalyst now, is that going to like break loose stuff, or should I go and get the diesel force clean first, or am I okay just to start using the catalyst at this point without the diesel force clean? Pete? So what we've seen would be, if anything that's going to happen is maybe a, <clears throat> a sensor, um, you know, something would break free and, and, and mess up the sensor. And, and it because it, it, Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, with 500,000 okay. miles, doing the diesel force, uh, you know, a good idea would be to do the diesel force, let's clean a DPF, and then start running a catalyst. And then you're kind of starting off with a clean slate. Right, yeah. I got you. All right, fellas. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, see if any other drivers call in and see if they got any suggestions about the other thing. So, I appreciate it, guys. You take All care. right. Thanks for the call. Let's go to... Delaware. Albert, welcome to the program. Hello, guys. Can you hear me? We can. What's on your mind today? Hey, just wanted to throw this out there. Um, I talked to Bruce here a couple of weeks ago. So I have a 1978 Freightliner, an old freight shaker. Um, and we put a lot of money into it this last year. And I've got a potential buyer for it. And me and Bruce were talking about what kind of truck, you know, look for and he was thinking that i should probably go after a 379 and just some of the, you know i'm a grain hauler um but then i got to thinking i'm like man if we take this money because one of the things i've learned is the downtime on a vehicle or truck when i'm not running so i'm thinking i might just go maybe try to find two trucks and then save the money and get the truck i really want maybe in a year or two so um, he was uh, mentioning that, uh, you know, the T600, T660s, he's had really good luck with it, the IX Cummins. So I guess I'm question is what kind of motors I should be looking for in that or what what options. You know, obviously I'm looking for cheap trucks then, too. I'm, I'm hoping I can pick at least a truck up for, you know, 15 or 20 or maybe two of them for, you know, 30 or 40 or something like that. What, why are we thinking about two trucks? Maybe I missed something there. I'm just looking at the downtime. If a truck is down, um, I, I'm a grain hauler. So, it, you know, the money so, is good as long as the wheel is the so wheels hold, are turning. Hold, hold, hold on a second. I mean, very seldom have I seen where it, it makes sense to have a second truck just because you're concerned about the downtime. Um, now in, in, I had an operation when I was at FedEx that there, I've said there were years where I did keep an extra truck, but I never went out and bought one. It was always, I needed to replace a truck and rather than trade in, I just kept an older truck that I had already paid for and I would just rotate those through. And that wasn't 
because it was cost effective. It was because I had to protect my contract at FedEx. We had a scoring system. And if you missed a, a, a day of work, it was it went against your score and then you didn't have as many points to bid on things. So there was a reason gotcha. to really protect that. I have not seen. Hey, let me yep. ask you this question. How long have you owned trucks? Um, a year. I'm actually just a year into it. So in this year, what, what year of truck do you currently have? Sounds like it's fairly old. Uh, yeah, 1978. Yeah, you liner. said that. Okay. In, in a year with the yep. truck that is almost 50 years old, coming up on 50 years old. How much downtime yep. have you had with that truck? Uh, we probably had close to three months downtime. Then now, you did a shitty job had, when you bought it. Yeah, <laughs> it really did. Yeah, so, so... <laughs> So let's not let's not take an experience where we did the wrong thing and then repeat it even worse. We went out and bought the wrong truck. Right. We didn't do the right inspections. We didn't look at it the right way. And it cost you all this downtime. Now you want to go buy two more of those. Yeah, well, not that. Yeah, I, I, that's something I, I want to whatever I buy. Yeah, I want to do a better job with it. And that's what I was talking to Bruce about, and he was kind of filling me in a little bit too, but yeah. So let's not buy so two. You said so about can, a, can we just start there that buying outdoors. two trucks would be a really bad idea right now? Yeah. Okay. So and that's, that's fine. And that's kind of what I'm asking and throwing it out there. If it's better just to focus on one or two. So no, don't buy two. Let, let's just start there. Do not buy two yeah. trucks right now. That makes no sense whatsoever. It would make far more sense to take what you were going to spend on two trucks and make that your budget for one truck. Gotcha. And then yeah. we can get somewhat newer, somewhat lower miles. And now it's important to spec it right so it becomes efficient. Right. Exactly. Gotcha. Yep. Yep, that makes sense. So now yeah, what we need to know me, about Bruce, that's what, is your operation. You're a grain hauler. What part of the country do you spend most of your time yep. in? Um, a lot in Pennsylvania, Western Virginia, West Virginia. I'm anywhere from South Carolina all the way upstate New York. So, so kind of all over the place. You know, you mentioned two, two states there that you might spend a lot of time in, Pennsylvania and West Virginia. Really, really tough. Those steep, short yeah. hills that are really hard oh, on fuel yeah. economy. So we want to spec it for that. How? What speed do you like to drive at most of the time? Uh, mostly, I average like sixty-seven. That's my average, sixty-seven. Okay. And what what do you think a reasonable budget's going to be for you? How much money do you want to spend? I would say a reasonable budget, uh, sixty thousand, and then you know I, I still may have twenty thousand left over to kind of put off to the side, you know. So yeah, I, I would say sixty thousand. So when you say sixty, and then you have forty, do you have like a hundred thousand cash sitting there? Is that what we're talking about? I have no eight, no twenty, sixty and twenty. I like to have. I have eighty, eighty thousand cash that I've got. You know, I can work with. Okay. So one truck, 
um, with the $60,000 budget, which is a reasonable budget, have you been out looking at trucks in that price range yet? I have been looking some, yes. So, um, I, I have, I've been kind of looking at a little bit of everything, but I, I just, yeah, I, I, I haven't really found, you know, something exactly what I'm looking for or what, uh, you know, should be going after, but. So then tell me this, tell me a truck you found, tell me what year, the price, all that, but it's not exactly what you want. Give me an idea of something you found that you were. Um, interested in but then when it's you looked at it you thought no i'm not um it's a 2005 uh peterbilt um they're asking fifty thousand for it hell and no I think, not not no but hell yeah. no <laughs> well let, let first off let's let's start with something i i have a pretty strict rule that i really don't want to buy trucks any truck or any engine between the years of like 04, uh, Leroy, what's a good upper end? 2014 or so, pretty much everything after 2014 has been quite a bit better, right? Um, yeah, I'd say 14. Yeah. So you're fairly safe if you stay out of buying trucks in that decade. 04 to 14, just, just don't look at anything right. in that. There are some exceptions just don't look at anything. if you really know what you're looking for, but it doesn't sound like you do, and we don't have time to get into all those details. There, there are some 2012 trucks that would be awesome, but if we want to stay safe, I would just stay out of that decade. There's no way in hell I would be looking at an 05 truck. Those were some of the worst years we had for emissions. Gotcha, yep. I think maybe well, that, uh, 2009 was worse. Yeah, <laughs> 8, 9, 10. Oh, well, yeah, you, you, yeah. Um, but my, my decade I, took care of that. We don't even think about 09. Yeah. His thing would be trying to find something. An 05 would be bad, but that seems like a lot of money. And if you were lucky enough to find one with some low mileage. I mean, there are a few trucks that are out there that, you know, it was company trucks that didn't have a lot of miles on. That would be a safe bet. But 50000 seemed pretty steep for a... A 17 or 18 year old truck. Yeah. Yeah. With lousy yeah. emissions. Yeah. Right. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Cool. Absolutely. Yep. So well, I know, I know it, I had a long conversation with Bruce and he really, you know, he, he was just a nice guy. I tell you, he, he's, he's, you guys are something else. I appreciate you guys. So, well, Bruce is good and he spends a lot of time with people. There's no doubt. Um, you know, when I travel with Bruce, it's it, sometimes I wonder why I'm traveling with him because I never get to talk to him because he's on the phone the whole time. Uh, Pete, does that sound familiar? <laughs> it sure does. It, it, it sure does. It, it, uh, and I'm serious. It doesn't matter if you've got 15 people in a party and you're going out to dinner with Bruce. There's a good chance Bruce is going to spend dinner on his phone. If people call him, he answers his phone. <laughs> and a lot of people call him. It's just... That's just the way it is. So how long, we, we know you've had a truck for a year. How long have you been driving? Um, only a year. Yep. I've oh. only been a year. I've uh, had a construction and real estate um, for 25 years, and it took us out beginning of COVID in the last year to basically 
going bankrupt with all that and, you know, got in the truck and I had some cash, sold some equipment and, you know, I was able to buy this truck outright with cash and get it fixed up. We don't owe anything on it, you know, don't have a mortgage on it. So, yeah, just started out year into it. I'm going to make a So, you know, I was thinking you must have some sort of a preference for a certain brand of truck, but you may not. I mean, you've been driving a year. You've only been in a couple trucks. So um, I, I certainly have some clear preferences on trucks and engines, and um, I, I could make a recommendation, but I, I think I have a better recommendation than just focusing on the truck at this point. Um you're in kind of a unique position. You started a year ago and you did a lot of things wrong, like many of us did. I made all those same mistakes in the beginning. Almost everybody does. You've got cash, you've got some business experience, and you're at a point right now where you can do a reset. You can start over. It's almost like starting the whole business over again, but having a year's experience that will help, but something that's going to help even more and this is going to be a shameless plug for you to pay me some money. Um, I, I have a course online that will teach you all this stuff about how to get started and do okay. it right. It's a couple hundred bucks. Gotcha. I don't even know the yep. price. I don't pay attention to our prices. Okay. Um, but it, I, I'm thinking it's like 200 and some dollars, 250 or something like that. It's a really extensive course. It's going to teach you everything about setting up an owner-operator business from scratch. Everything takes you all the way through your first year. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. So well, what I would what recommend I do, is, definitely, I just, yeah, is you go take that course and you're probably going to end, you're going to learn a lot and you're going to end up with even more questions, good questions right now. And that this isn't, you know, a criticism. We all go through this when we're inexperienced. You don't even know what you don't know. You, you don't even know enough to ask right. the right questions yet. Yep. Which is okay. Yep. That's uh, the, it, it, so, it, it, there's nothing yeah, wrong with that other than trying to ignore it and thinking it's not the truth and then just continuing to make mistakes. But if you just admit, look, I'm inexperienced yeah. at this, I don't know, and I don't even know what I don't know then the course is going to teach you a lot of things and actually create better questions. And then you can call in the show anytime you want. I mean, while you're going through the course, just call whenever and say, yep. hey, I read this in the course and I got thinking about this and uh, we'll just walk you right through this. Okay, cool. Awesome. Yep. Yep. Well, that's what, uh, you know, my buddy JJ, he uh, introduced me to you guys in Pittsburgh Power and and actually, this truck was out to Pittsburgh Power and got the filter systems and stuff put on it. So, good. you know, it's good. just uh, good to have you guys uh, in a, you know, something to go to. So, yeah, you're you're in a good position here. You've got cash. You, you've been through a year. You've got some experience under your belt. And it, it, doing a reset right now is actually a really good idea. And you're in a good position to do it. it just don't rush it. Take your time. And, and work through this right. and you're going to yeah, end yep. up in a much better position. So the easiest way to go find I that cool. course, if you want to record this or write it down, the website to go directly to those courses is learn.letstruck.com. Okay. And, and honestly, Not there cool. are several okay. courses in there that would help you at this point. One of them, the, the main one, the one that teaches you everything step-by-step step to set up the business, get through your first year. 
That one's called Stop Holding the Steering Wheel and Start Driving Your Business. There's another course in there I wrote with uh, Larry Wingett and I did it together. It's called Taking Care of Business. And, And it just teaches you a lot of really good basic business skills. I have a course in there um, on optimizing uh, fuel tax and fuel purchasing. There's there's a lot of good business courses in there, but at the very least, take the stop holding the steering wheel course. Gotcha. Cool. Oh, did did we lose you? I don't know if you broke up there. Hey, you there? Yeah. Hey, yep. Well, I was going to say, I appreciate it. Thank you, Kevin and Pete uh, and Leroy. I appreciate you guys. You're welcome. And uh, yeah. I, I okay. expect phone calls because if you're really taking the course and working through it, it's going to generate a lot of questions. And then you can call the show and we'll answer your questions. Let's go to Texas. Rusty, welcome to the program. Hey, guys. Uh, I don't if that guy could, that has the brake problems, he can get that thing hot enough to set it on fire. <laughs> I think that's what I would do. With that deal. I mean, find you a idea. dirt road with some green grass around it and just let her go. There you go. These, not a, not a bad a, idea. I, I'm I'm used to old trucks, and my my old truck is getting a complete uh, rebuild, and I'm in a 2022 uh, Freightliner, and it's neat. You know, it it drives good, but. They do some crazy things. Uh, you know, you you flip flip a switch with the key turned off, and the gauges. You know, one gauge will come on, one gauge will go off. Uh, sometimes the lights come on, sometimes they don't. They just got a mind of their own. But my question was about. Um, so I'm I'm getting. Uh, uh, I got a 01 T600 complete uh, rebuild out of frame on the N14 and I'm changing the transmission out also. Um, I would like to know if I should go with an 18 speed or a 13 speed and the reason I was going to go with the 13 but I also have some differential problems kind of like the guy earlier. These differentials got two and a half million miles on them and one is cracked and I've had it welded three times and uh, it's the eight bag suspension with the big bracket on top of the the differential that's cracked so anyway it's going to be very expensive to change the housing so I just as well change the gears when I do that is, is the 18 speed going to be low enough to give me startability with 264s in a sandy field with a load on? You know, even with the 13 speed, I don't think it's going to be an issue. I mean, the 18 does have the deep production. So, yeah, you can crawl out of anything with the 18 speed. Um, but the 18 speed's heavier and more money than a 13 speed. Are you staying under 18,000 pounds? Uh for me, eighty thousand. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, weight, weight is. Uh, I mean, I get paid by the weight, so light is better. However, um, I mean, I had a Super Ten in it, and I, it's the second Super Ten I've had in it, and it. I, I, I think those things are so wore out anymore that they're hard to find a good one. But uh, yeah, I'm just. I, I, 
I just think I, I think in those situations out in a sandy field with eighty four, eighty five thousand pounds getting it started, I just need all the advantage I can get. And I don't even know if I can go to two sixty fours. I've had this conversation multiple times and it just it it's a load to get it started in in the sand. So I've got three fifty fives now. Yeah, you know, um, it, I just it, wonder if there's enough advantage to the 18 over the 13 to if I'm replacing it anyway. I mean, I think if I remember correctly, the first gear difference between a 13 and 18 speed is like two points. I want to yep. say a 13 speed like 12 to one first gear, and I think an 18 speed like 14 and a half yep, to one first right. gear. Mm-hmm. Um. We, the it's one thing we've say. got to be careful of is there's an awful lot of 13 speeds and an awful lot of 18 speeds, like dozens or yeah. more, and <laughs> they can all have slightly different gear ratios. I, I think the real issue here is if you really think you're going to struggle, you know, with that startability, it might not be worth it to try to go to that higher gear ratio and run and direct. There just might not be enough advantage. Yeah. That may be the case. My operation is tough, tough because it's uh, it's basically no interstate, all 30 miles, and you've got to stop in a little town. Well, hold on. Stop right there. Run the the PTO. That that little piece of information just made it really easy. There would be almost zero benefit in your operation to being able to run and direct. Almost none. Yeah. Yeah, so let, let's not That's screw up our up, bottom yeah. end when we're not going to create any advantage anywhere else. Yeah. I mean, we do have some, it's, but it's, it, like it, you say, it's, I, it, it's if, not if enough you're not miles, spending, If you're not spending 90% of your time out on the highway at highway speeds, this isn't worth it. Okay, very good. That's, uh, that's the answer that I needed. Uh Pete, I also I've I've talked to you several times about getting some N14 rods redone, or you send me some. <clears throat> I know you were having trouble finding some, so I, I did find a shop that rebuilt mine, and uh, it was it was cheap, four hundred and fifty bucks for all six of them, and uh, I think they did a yeah. I think they did a good job. It was a good, I think it was a good shop. So crazy expensive, and unfortunately, the, the people that we use to recondition our rods were just backed up. Uh, between the the holidays and people being sick and so forth, they were just so far behind. We just couldn't get anything done in a timely manner. Um, I actually have a set here on stock for that reason. Now they were able to get a set. So if someone needs them, I would have them. Yeah. Uh, but I do have a question. I'm trying to learn something. I had, I had to, we we went ahead and had to pull the block out of this truck because the, the deck was, <clears throat> needed to be resurfaced and the machine shop that my shop sent it to <laughs> my old uh, veteran mechanic I, I i i think he's not uh doesn't have a lot of confidence in this guy's ability to to surface the block uh, the the machinist said he thought he was going to have to take off 20 thousandths to get this the the mounting surface correct. Do you ever see them have to take that much off on an N14? I don't think this block's got not. more than a million and a half miles on it. No, I have not. I wonder what the is. Very, yeah. Oh, 
Um, now, that's not saying that that can't happen, but that's by no means the norm. I mean, generally, six, seven thousands cleans them up. You know, he might have a minor flaw at that point, you know, taking six or seven, but at that point, it's so much better. That slight flaw um, is irrelevant. Okay. And that's what my, my uh, mechanic said. He said, if it doesn't, on the N14, he's pretty confident putting one together that's not perfect. Um, but I, he didn't want him to take that much off of it, obviously. Um, right. So anyway, I'm you, you uh, have a, a pistol, um, uh, valve clearance issue taking that much off. Yeah. Yep. And do you ever have to put an oversized uh, head gasket on an N14? We have not had to. Not that I can recall. Okay. Well, we're supposed to get the block back here this week, so we'll get to get to figure that out but uh, I guess that's all the questions I had I'm just going to stick the 13 in it and drive a little slower so uh, at 13 speed at 355 and an N14 is a pretty nice setup especially if you're not going on the highway much yeah yeah it's just fine yeah yeah that's we we our operation is so so tough to to uh for fuel mileage i mean it's just about as bad as it gets so just can't 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 get on the on the highway long enough to make a lot of these yeah. things work that that y'all talk that you talk about in a you know a highway exactly. operation so you know we, we look at the things that might improve things but uh, you know it that the operation is what it is and i'm assuming the rate pays well enough that we don't need to get too crazy about fuel economy you're right. I think, uh, and I and I hate to say it because I know. I mean, I watch expenses too. But honestly, in our industry, <clears throat> it's uh, it just no nobody can get. You know, I mean, there's people that get a little better, but nobody gets that. <laughs> nobody gets seven miles a gallon in yeah, our industry. Exactly, and I mean, and you I mean, know, we have even several on, even we have really several segments stuff. that are like that. You know, heavy haul over dimension cars. We talk to, you know, a lot of car haulers on the show and we go over their numbers and, you know, those, there are a couple segments that are stuck in that four and a half to five mile per gallon range. Now I do tell people if you're in one of those, every one tenth we can squeeze out is more important. You know, it, it, if you're at yep. four and a half and you're comparing yourself to somebody who gets nine, if you get one tenth more, your savings are double what theirs is. You you accomplish the mm -hmm. same thing by getting one tenth of a mile per gallon better. Their reward is twice what yours, or your reward is twice what theirs is, because you're it's a percentage. You're starting yeah. at such a low number. So I do tell people in those yeah. segments, don't ignore fuel economy. Most people do. They just say, oh, nobody gets any. Don't ignore it. Let's do everything we can if, if we can only squeeze out a little bit more. It, it's worth it. But making this gear ratio change does not make sense. That's one thing that we can look at and go, no, in your operation, that just doesn't make sense. Not enough of an advantage, and we're yeah. going to create some issues. But, uh, you know, focus, low rolling resistance would be important. I know when you're off-road, it doesn't matter much, but that, that time you're on pavement, whether it's an interstate or not, 
when you're doing slower speeds, rolling resistance becomes more important than aerodynamics. Um, engine performance and, and engine modifications that make this thing run much more efficient. All of those things are worth it. It's just in this case, doing a gear ratio change just doesn't make any sense. Yep. Well, very good. I will let y'all get on to it. Uh, thank y'all. All right. Thanks for the call. Let's go to Oklahoma. Paul, well, speaking of Paul, Paul, welcome to the program. Howdy. What's on your um, mind today? Three things now. Well, lots of things now. So that guy that was just on with the N14, the yeah. 15 speed, if he can find one, the 15 speed, it has a lower first there, gear. There is a lower. Behind a, a yeah, N14. there is a lower gear yeah. in some of the 15s. They're hard to find. And even if we found it, yeah. now he's looking at probably 10 grand. By the time you do the transmission, the differentials, um, it's going to get expensive. And there's just not enough savings there. If I were him, I yeah. would leave the drive line alone and spend so, the money elsewhere. Yeah. Um, the guy with old 78 Freightliner that wants to buy two trucks. Yeah. He should just buy one truck and keep the old 78 Freightliner for a backup. Yeah, I don't know why we didn't think of that. That's the obvious. Yeah. Answer: He's got cash. He's already yeah. got a truck. Yeah, that that good thinking. And then the the guy that's going to do the cutoff on the to get rid of the vibrations. Yeah, stay away from the Peterbilt flex air and get because it's too torque reactive. Get the low air. You know, that was kind of my point when I talked about the pack car suspensions. I, I'm just not familiar with them. You know, I've heard the terms all these years. I've never yeah, owned the one. Air, the I, flex air has got, the, got that spring that loops around, goes out forwards. And yeah. Back. It's too torque reactive. The low air leaf, which is on all car carriers, that's the better suspension. It's a lot less got it. reactive, but... Got it. If I was him, I'd I'd put two sixty fours in it and I'd slow down a few miles now. Because I think he's probably in the three seventy nine at a guess. So he'd pick up because of the slower speed, he'd pick up a little bit of fuel mileage. Yeah, absolutely. And the difference between the difference between seventy two and sixty seven at the end of the day, you're gonna pull up beside him at the fuel island. Hey, yeah, yeah. I'll pump less fuel than you. Yep, exactly. Yep. So that's all I got. Have fun. All right. That's all we need. Thanks for the call. Right about. Let's go to Minnesota. I'll also let you know we, uh, we've got phone lines open. We'll hang out here today as long as we've got calls. When the calls end, we'll end. So if you want to jump in now, there's room 855-950-3835. We're off to Minnesota. John, welcome. Hi, Kevin. I got one uh, comment for you and then a question for Pittsburgh Power. Um, a while back ago, you had a guy that was mentoring another guy, um, and the second one guy was going to go into a lease purchase. Um, and it was looking for your suggestion on to your free uh, online course about lease purchases. I was just going to remind you about that. 
Oh yeah, there is. Yeah, one of the courses I do have is free. What uh, What's the title of that one? Um, I I don't remember, but you had it on these purchases, and I thought that would be a perfect uh, course to recommend to that uh, second guy that was looking at going into that. So yeah, I, I'm I can't believe I can't think of the name of that one right now, but I'm I'm looking it up here. So let me. Uh, let me find it so I know the name of this one. Um, I don't know. Yeah, Did, it was on one of your shows. You had a guy call in that was mentoring somebody, and the mentee was dead set on doing a lease purchase. And I'm like, and you even said, if he goes with the lease purchase, don't mentor him anymore. So, oh yeah, I don't I, remember who it was on that phone call, but. <laughs> I, I do remember the call. Um, so yeah, it, you know, if I'm hopefully still listening, um, there is a free course in there that does primarily focus on all of the problems with lease purchase. It's almost like, you know, I, I usually recommend people just go through that course first because it's free and then move on to stop holding mm -hmm. the steering wheel. So thank you for reminding me of that. Right. Uh, Pittsburgh Power, I have your guys' uh, turbo boost gauge with my truck off, so it shouldn't ha should be reading zero. It's reading like four pounds, so I'm wondering if there's a way to adjust that at all. No, there is not. Um, okay. Yeah, so, you know, unfortunately, it sounds like the gauge is simply off. How long have you had it? They do have a one-year warranty. Uh, it's probably up past yeah, that year. Sure, but you can call parts, our parts department and ask them to look it up to see how long you've had it. And right. you're saying engine off just sitting there reads four pounds, right? Correct. Yeah, that sounds like it's just broken, yeah. Okay. That answers my question. I was just hoping there was a way of adjusting it a little bit, but um, unfortunately not. All right. Thank you guys very much. You have a nice day. All right. Thanks for you the too. call. All right. Uh, that's going to do it for the calls. We'll hang out uh, another 30 seconds or so and see if anything comes in. Um, I did find the name of that course. I can't believe I forgot it. Uh, Changing Lanes Without Crashing. That's a free course about lease purchase and some other things about getting started. Uh, I think I wrote like seven rules never to do when you get started. Uh, and then I do talk about lease purchases and all the problems with those. And again, that is a free course. So um, we have a lot of courses. We have health courses. We have business courses. We have courses on money. On um, Like I said, we have uh, fuel optimization Lots of stuff. So head on over to learn.letstruck.com and uh, you'll be able to see those courses and sign up. Looks like uh, we've got some calls starting to come in. So uh, we're screening those now. We'll hang out here and get to those. Let's uh, let's head north of the border this time. We're going to go to Alberta. Ben, welcome to the program. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Good. What's on your mind today? So um, 
can you guys help me understand um, how do you know which gear is direct? I do not quite uh, understand that. Uh, so the only way to truly know for sure, you have to know the transmission model number, and then we have to go look up the chart that shows us the ratio of each gear. And a direct gear is really easy to find. When you look at this chart, you're going to see all kinds of decimals. And But direct gear is easy to find. It's always exactly one. That, that will be the number for that gear ratio. It will be one. Okay. Now, it, it, it so typically, typically the most common transmission on the market, you know, in the last 30 years was a 13-speed Eaton, basically. And primarily, most of those are double overdrives or what we refer to as double overdrives. So 11th is the most common direct gear in a 13-speed transmission. Um, 16th is the most common direct gear in an 18-speed. But you can have single overdrive transmissions. In that case, 12th would be direct in a 13-speed and 17th would be direct in an 18-speed. We could also have transmissions that the final ratio itself is direct. There could be an 18-speed with 18th as direct or a 13-speed with 13th as direct. So typically, it's, it, it could be 13th, 12th, or 11th. It, it's going to be one of the top two or three gears. Okay. So there's no way to know that while you're driving the truck under no. a load? No. Now, I shouldn't say that. If you know all the other variables, if you know what your rear end ratio is exactly, and you know what your tire size is exactly, and then we take into account speed and RPM, I could run it through a calculator and tell you whether it's direct or not. Here's here's another way. What's that? 433s, 18 speed, uh, at 1600 RPM at 62 miles an hour. So did you say 433s? Yeah. Okay. Then I can guarantee this is a double overdrive 18, so 16th is your direct gear, and you probably can't go much more than about 40 miles an hour. Right. So what would be the ratios you would recommend for changing them out? Well, there's only one reason I ever recommend it, and that's for fuel economy gains. There's no other reason to die. Well, I mean, we could say drivability, but there are a lot of setups that have good drivability and horrible fuel economy. So primarily, really, the only reason I do it is for fuel economy. Yeah, because I'm only getting 3.7 something so out of this truck. What what are you doing with this truck? I mean, this is typically a kind of heavy haul construction local kind of a setup. What are you doing with it? That's what the furthest we run with this truck is. Um, I'd say thirty miles. Oh yeah, well, that make 
I mean, that, that was a fairly common spec for a, a local, you know, moving equipment around, moving construction stuff around locally. That, that was a pretty common setup. So that's all you can expect is three to four miles no, per gallon. No, I don't put words in my mouth. I never said that. I just said it was a common setup. Of course we could do better. Okay, right. Well, it's got the fleet air filter and um, the muffler on this. And it's a Mac, but I was just wondering if there's improvements to be made on fuel mileage. That's all. There, there are improvements to be made. I, I never start thinking about rear end ratios first. It's almost the last thing I consider. Because it's so expensive, it can be a little tricky sometimes. We don't always get the results we're hoping for when we make those gear changes, so I'm very careful about recommending gear changes. I mean, the whole point is is we want to make more money. If I have to go spend $10,000 to pick up two tents, that just doesn't make any sense. Right. So... You know, I, I know you're nowhere near Pittsburgh, but one of the best ways to deal with this is to pull in and let them go over the truck from front to back and put together a plan on how to get better fuel economy. All right. Yeah, I'm just thinking, you know, it's just a thought. Just yeah, I, I, would, I, I, would, um, I, I would avoid gear ratio. How many miles a year do you put on this truck even? Um, 30, 40. Oh, yeah. See, you you have the average over-the-road truck puts four times more miles on the truck. That means if it would take an over-the-road truck one year to break even, it would take you four years to break even. Correct. Right. Makes sense, yeah. So when you're – now, see, you're almost in the, the – boat I'm in with my coach. I don't put enough miles on my coach to go spend a bunch of money trying to improve the fuel economy. As much as I like fuel economy and as much as that's my thing, I have done almost nothing to the coach to improve fuel economy other than, you know, Leroy turning it so I tuning it so I can do wheelies with it. And that actually helped my fuel economy. Um, but other than that, I don't, I don't I don't spend any money on trying to get better fuel economy. It wouldn't make any sense. But even uh, drivability, Kevin, would be would improve this truck. I think quite a bit because it well, your, the drivability isn't here with issues. It, well, I will tell you what improves drivability better than almost any other modification I've ever seen, and that's just tuning an engine right. Uh huh. So I would yeah. focus on performance enhancements, tuning, airflow, you know, engine efficiency, those kinds of things is where you really want to focus because you will get a performance enhancement. It will be more drivable and there will be some fuel savings. All right. Yeah, well, I got the fleet air filter. And the muffler, and uh, yeah, I could probably look into tuning and other things. That, that, uh, but I had another question, if you don't mind. No, go ahead. So on uh, Pittsburgh Powers, the Hewitt, uh, I think they're, that's what they're called, uh, the pyrometer gauges, 
my parameter gauge in my 3406 International is the 89. Um, it sits at one. Is that normal? All the time, even if the truck is off, it's shut off. Well, so they will set somewhat at ambient temperature. Now, keep in mind, they're not terribly accurate at 70 or 80 degrees, but they seldom sit on zero. All right. Now, there is a way to test them. You have to have, um, and we have the equipment here to test the pyrometer. You take the wires off and attach it right to the, the head of the pyrometer. And when the temperature reaches 300 degrees, yours should reach 300 degrees. When ours reach 6, yours should reach 6, and so forth, up to 1,200 degrees. If it reads off, then the pyrometer's bad needs replaced. All right. Can be tested. Well, it's brand new, and I just got it, and uh, it's it's been like that ever since I had it. So it might be, it might be just yeah. normal. People read because they are tech. You know, again, if you're out in, in you know a hot environment, it's a hundred degrees or more. The needle's going to move up a little further than those you know, things place it to thirty degrees. Uh huh. Right. Yeah. And on, uh, on another uh, note, the Peterbilt, the 389-2022-565 Cummins, 290 rears, 18-speed. Uh, what What's uh, the fuel mileage expecting out of that unit? Uh, I'm sure it's got it's got all the stock manifolds, stock turbos, and and all all the other things but the rear end ratios seem to be pretty good other than uh, i'm sure there's more stuff that you can guys can do to that truck what what do you expect out of a unit like that for fuel mileage i missed the specs what was it um 290 rears 18 speed uh, 565 Cummins 2020 uh, 2021 Peterbilt 389. Wow, what an odd setup. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I would, I wouldn't count on anything more than about seven or seven and a half. With with all the Pittsburgh power performance parts on it? No, then then we'd have to, uh, you know, stock it's seven and a half. What what's possible out of that truck? Uh, eight and a half probably. Is that right? Hauling uh, forty four metric ton net weight, like that's about hundred no. fifty thousand pounds. Then no. That, that's a big factor that I wasn't taking into account. I thought we were talking about just general freight here. No, at, at 150,000 pounds, you're going to be down in the five range. Uh-huh. So with all the Pittsburgh power performance parts, uh, you guys talk about like manifolds and turbos and mufflers and stuff like that. What, what do you expect? Could you well, expect quite a bit more? It, well, hold on. We can't throw mufflers in there anymore. Anything that has a DPF, we can't talk about mufflers. 
but it, the other right. stuff. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, all of that stuff's going to help. And I can kind of give you a rough range. It's kind of an unusual spec on the truck. It's an unusual operation. But I, I would venture to say that stock, you're going to struggle between four and a half and five. And with all the modifications, you're going to be five and a half to six at best. All right. So what's odd about the setup? Um, I don't think I've ever seen that engine and, and that driveline with a 290 rear end ratio. That's just really odd. Okay, so where would you where would you be with that uh, drive line on that engine? I thought two sixty fours or two nineties is the way. Well, maybe, but I'm saying it, it's just an odd setup, so it doesn't it, it doesn't click in my head. I have to get out the calculators and start looking at things and, and thinking this through. Yeah, and now that's a lot of weight. What? Tell me more about the operation. How far? Uh, it runs, this truck would run, um, 150 miles back and forth with that kind of weight, one, one way full and empty, oh, 150 so, to 200 miles. So half these miles are empty and you might be doing 300 miles a day or is the 150 total for a day? One, uh, no, 150 is one way, uh, full and then 150 back empty, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, if we really wanted to get crazy and get the best fuel, do we have any, we shouldn't have any startability issues if we stay away from, you know, really high gear ratios. Um, you know, ideally, if I were building a truck for this operation, it would be a six by two with a liftable. I mean, that, that when you've got that 50% empty number, that, that setup kind of shines. Uh, just depends on how, how much money you want to put into this thing. But I, I, most of, if we stick with performance upgrades, they're going to pay for themselves. If we start looking at gear ratio changes and, you know, making it a six by two, we, we'd have to sit down and, and crunch a lot of numbers. All right. Yeah, well, we're just looking to buy this truck, so that's why I'm asking all these questions. Um, how much? Uh, it's got 60,000 miles on it. Uh, the price tag is uh, uh, 220,000 Canadian. Okay, so, you know... It's such a strange world we're in anymore. I used to be able to listen to a truck price and know exactly if it made sense. Now I don't. Prices went up so much. Now we're talking Canadian to throw in there. It's, uh, um, you know, when I hear $220,000 for a used truck, and I know it's only got 60,000 miles on it, I still cringe. And and that may be that may be the number. That just may be the price of that truck right now. But uh um, this is one where I would really have to sit down and do a lot of thinking and, and crunch a lot of numbers. Okay. Yeah, the, the, the guys that are selling it actually are selling this truck for, I'm not sure how much more. They've used it for two years. They're selling it for like 
40 or 50,000 more than they paid for it two years ago. So have you been able to find any similar trucks to this? Not really. Not with the rear end ratios. Like to, the rear end ratios are all around 355, yeah, 373s. In your operation, there might not be anything wrong with that. Right. You know, again, I, I, well, I, I, I may be willing. I, I may be willing to give up that two or three tenths that we might get out of that gear ratio. Go back to it because I don't know how much time you're going to spend in direct anyway. Go back to typical three fifty fives, three seventies that'll handle that kind of weight. Focus on the. So I, I'm not sure that I would buy this truck. I, I don't see the advantage of that gear ratio being worth it. Okay. I just sound, I, I just have a feeling I could find a, a a a better truck at a much better price than that. Right. So what uh, like uh, that kind of operation? What? How would you spec a truck? Uh, would it be in the threes? And what engine? What truck? Well, if if I'm going out and specking and I can spec new. I mean, I, I'd be sitting down, and, and again, this is a, it's kind of an unusual operation. It's going to be slightly unusual specs, so I don't know these off the top of my head. I would have to sit down and take some time. But I, this is an, a place where I think the Volvo platform really shines. We could spec this truck to run in a couple different gears on the top end and give you some flexibility. And since we, if we're buying new, now we can look at doing a 6 by 2 it, it's so much more cost effective when you do it new rather than a conversion. So I, I would be sitting down looking at a six by two in the Volvo platform and then just calculating which gear ratio was best. Okay. Does that uh, Volvo platform have good startability like in fields? The, the best in the summertime, there's trucks. The best on the market. Nobody even comes close to um, Volvo's 14 speed with two crawler gears. Is that right, eh? Well, they have some of the lowest ratios in existence, I believe. That They've got a crawler gear that's so deep, you can pull anything out of a hole. Uh-huh. But it's only a, you would only spec it as a six by two? Well, I, I wouldn't say I would only spec it as a 6x2, but I, I really like 6x2s. And if we're going to spec new, that's when it makes sense to do it, not to spend all the money to try to convert one later. Uh-huh. And the other advantage to specking new now with 6x2s instead of converting like we've been doing for years, um, Volvo's 6x2 and their their weight transfer capabilities and it's all automated and you get fantastic traction even with the, the one drive axle. So the the advantage now is specking that new. Yeah. But if you're already spending two hundred and twenty thousand dollars on a truck, I'm pretty sure I could make make a you know, build a really nice Volvo here that would make a lot of sense. Right. And and uh, you're thinking fuel economy would be quite a bit higher on that Volvo and that uh, operation? 
Yeah, I do. I think it'd be significantly higher. Hard to put a number on it because we don't have a lot of experience. Um, but just understanding the physics, um, not only would there be better fuel economy, I think there'd be a lot better component life. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, okay. Well, that really answers my questions, Kevin. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Thanks, Thanks for the call. Let's go to Massachusetts. Roland, welcome to the program. Is that for me, Kevin? Yep. What's on your mind today? Hi, how you doing? Um, I, I got a situation. I got a 2016 Freightliner. Uh, it broke down the ECM. At the time, it happened in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, where they couldn't find the ECM for my truck, so I bought one through my company. And the ECM got replaced three or four times. Um, the, the, the truck is sitting in here in Massachusetts. It broke down when I came in for Christmas last year. And since then, I had some health issues. Um, I actually passed out twice last year. So anyways, the, the ECM that I purchased, it was apparently defective by Cummins. And um, my company got involved, and they involved... Um, People from Cummins and Freightliner were they're still guessing and changing parts left and right. Now it's at I think it's thirteen thousand dollar bill, where the truck is supposedly fixed, but it's not. And now uh, I feel like they did all this test order by Cummins. And I'm left up with the with the bill on a part that I purchased supposedly originally for the truck, VINC number, and this Freightliner dealer just played doctor and didn't know what else to do with the truck. They replaced fuel um, lower fuel pump, high. I feel pressure pump and all to end up with a broken truck or truck is is not even done. I don't know what I'm doing. What engine's in here? Coming. An ISX? Yeah, ISX. Yeah. So what's the truck doing? I mean, it won't start, won't run. I mean, what, is your codes? Yeah, there, there were codes on the truck indicating that the ECM was no good. Since the ECM got replaced, supposedly purchased um, about it in Sioux City at the Peterbilt dealer. Connection with my with my company, he supposedly said that was. Uh, Cummins refer 
it was not new, but the codes were. I'm sorry. It's a Cummins reman ECM. I don't think you can buy new. They're all remands, which is not a problem. Okay. Uh, Before I went to all my health issues and everything, um, this this AGT Westfield straight line contact my company and they contact the Cummins and someone South Dakota, my the company that I'm working for, or I was working for, um, they they deal with uh, plenty dealers <coughs> and manufacturers. So the thing is, they went through all kinds of testing to the truck, left and right, left and right, to the end. Instead of either ECM was the uh, Sam chassis, and now the truck is sitting broke down. Now they want, like I said, uh, almost thirteen thousand dollars. I pay six thousand in Oklahoma. I pay another X amount of thousands to my company, and and I'm just end up with a broken truck and not money anymore to take care of it. I feel like the- what are they saying wrong with it? I mean, are they not able to give you an answer? I mean. No, the the truck basically sat all to twenty thirty two in the shop and now they call me <clears throat> saying that the truck is ready. Uh so this labor involves parts that I, I, I feel like they replaced for playing doctor and not knowing what was wrong with it and it all all originated through the purchase of the ECM for the truck. So they're saying it's ready as in it's not broken right now, or I'm, I'm having a hard time figuring out what's what's actually wrong with it right now. I haven't received the truck fixed from them. But but are they saying they it is it's... fixed now and you just have to go pick it up and try it? Right. So, and how much is the repair bill right now to get it out to see if this thing's fixed or not? Uh, it's thirteen thousand. So, is the problem you either don't have the thirteen thousand, or you don't feel like you should pay the thirteen thousand? Well, in a way, I think I, I pay for the repairs that they never got fixed, and due to that broken part or or the incorrect part, I end up being stuck with it. Um, supposedly, one one of the things I learned about is that the ECM was not for a big rig; it was like for a six dually. What? And it was purchased by the big big number of the truck. Yeah, it's it's very bad situation. It, wait a minute. Now I, I'm getting more confused as this call goes along. This is a Cummins ISX engine, correct? Correct. And you're telling me they managed to put an ECM off of a pickup truck on it? Uh, That was uh, 1.1 of the comments that I got from one of the mechanics. Wait a minute. So some mechanic said we put an 
ECM off of a off of a pickup truck on this. No, no, no. That the specs of the reefer weren't for my truck. Although that the ECM was purchased by the big number of the truck. That ECM, since I bought it, it got replaced three to four times, generating all these problems to the truck not to run. And now, unfortunately, with my health, I haven't worked all, for the most part, all, all 22. And the truck, I, I, I own it. So I feel like they were now washing their hands to say, well, he's the owner. He's supposed to get that taken care of. <coughs> and I don't know. I'm... I'm not very clear on what to do. Well, so I'm not really clear on a lot of things in the story, but I'll try to give you the best advice I can. So let's talk about where you are financially right now. Are you able to pay the 13,000 and get the truck? No, um, I was on, on a verbal agreement with my company that when I came out back from my health issues up until the time I got my medical bike, they were going to take care of the bill and I paid them as working just like I paid them the truck. So this, let, let's go back a second. Was this a lease purchase truck? Yeah, I bought it from my company. Of course it is. What do you mean it's your company? All right. I, I, I worked nine years for Schuster Company. So so that's what a lease time. purchase is. I mean, let's just, let, let, we'll right. simplify. Lease purchase means you're buying a truck from the company you lease to. Now, there might be a third-party leasing company involved, but the fact that this is your company, that, that's what a lease purchase is. I, honestly, that's where all the problems okay. started. That's why I wrote a whole book. We were just talking about it earlier about all the problems with lease purchases. And this is one of them. What what I think if we dig down deep enough, you should have never bought this truck or leased this truck and got into business. You weren't ready. And it might be you weren't ready with money. You weren't ready with knowledge, probably both. And now we're stuck in this position where is this truck now titled in your name? Yes. Okay, so you either find $13,000 to get this truck out of there and get it back to work, or they're probably going to, you know, take you to court over $13,000 and they're going to hold your truck. I I don't know any other option. There's no point in arguing, were the repairs done right or wrong? We're never going to solve it with that argument. At some point, you could potentially take these the, the dealer to court, but I wouldn't recommend it. You could end up losing a whole bunch of money and a whole bunch of time and never get this resolved in court. When, when you start arguing repairs on complicated equipment, it's got to go before of a judge who doesn't know an ISX Cummins from the bunny rabbit. I mean, it, those and those are the people who have to decide on cases like this. It's never a good idea to have to take this stuff to court. $13,000 is a lot of money, but in today's world, 
That's just, a, that's a number you have to be prepared to pay if you're going to own a truck. There are lots of repairs these days that can add up to $10,000 or more. And it, it's, it, so really, we could go back and say the dealer screwed up and they made all these mistakes, but ultimately there's nothing you can do about those mistakes at this point. You either have to decide, can I get $13,000 and get this truck out of there and get back to work and start making money? Or am I just going to walk away from this and, and maybe file bankruptcy or do whatever you have to do to get out of it? Okay. All right. Well, I guess uh, that gives me a better perspective. Um, I will appreciate the time. All right. Thanks for the call. You know, I, I, I don't like to beat up on somebody too bad in a situation like this because it, it sucks. But sometimes we have to beat up on people. So, you know, hundreds or thousands of other people can learn that lesson. The lesson here is he should have never been in business in the first place. We can't untangle all of this money and all these maintenance problems and the truck's been down for a year and he's got health issues. And I, I could come up with at least 10 reasons why I should have never started the business in the beginning. And I, I, I hope I can reach more people so that they think about that before they make the mistake. Go take the two courses I've talked about today and you would avoid these kind of mistakes for 200 bucks, we could have saved, you know, not 13,000, probably 30 or 40,000 or more that he's going to lose out of this whole venture. Let's, uh, let's go to Georgia. Hal, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin. What's on your mind today? Hello? Yes, sir. Uh, I'm brand new at, at listening to your show and I've, I've listened for a little while. I've um, I'm well, first of all, I'm, a. have been in a truck for 22 years, but I've been in this truck for eight. Okay. I'm in a, uh, 19, 19 Kenworth, uh, it's got a X15 Cummins, uh, 15 speed, uh, 18 speed, no, 13 speed eating transmission with, uh, 336 gears. And I want to do some things to help the fuel mileage. It's a, it's a straight truck too. Okay. Um, it's got a pusher axle under it, and I haul chemicals with it. But there's a, I, I've heard some variations about um, oil samples that you've had. Uh, sometimes you'll see something that just don't look right, and I haven't done oil sample on this truck yet. It's I got it brand new and. Uh, the end of uh, 18, September of 18, it's got 396,000 on it. Um, and I've done that many, all those miles myself. It, I bought, I had hey. it, I got it brand new. Hey, Hal, I, I need yes, to check uh, some math here. Didn't you say at the beginning of this call you've been in this truck for eight years? Say that again, please. I think at the beginning of the call, you said you've been an owner, operator, a driver for 22 years and in this truck for eight years. Yes, that's correct. What year's the truck? It's a, no, no, yet, no, not in this truck. I've been in this, 
doing this business for eight years. Uh, okay. I've been in this truck since uh, September of uh, September of eighteen is when I got this truck. Got it. Okay, so four four and a half years or so. Yeah. Um, now yeah, you said this is a straight right. truck, in, in this truck, but it's got an X fifteen. This must yes. be a class eight chassis, right? Uh, I don't really know. It's got a tank on the back. The tank is uh, four thousand gallons, and it's insulated. It's got a skin around it. Yeah, I, I'm assuming uh, if it's an X15, it's got to be a Class 8. I don't think they put them in anything smaller than that, so must be a Class 8 chassis. Okay. Um, I haul uh, um, chemicals with it. The chemical weighs 12 pounds per gallon. I'm about 26 empty and about 58 loaded. Okay. So what was the specific question? I was so wrapped up in the details, I forgot uh, what the question was. I was uh, listening to your show the other day, and you, you had people call in with oil samples. Yeah. I haven't taken an oil sample on this truck yet. And they vary sometimes. You'll pick up little things that will indicate, like, if you're using Catalyst, you know, you oh, yeah. the sample so, will be different. Yeah, so uh, I, I guess if your question is just about oil samples in general, I, I believe that you should do oil samples all the time. Once you buy the truck, I mean, really, you should do an oil sample every 25,000 miles. Okay. How about, uh, how exactly, with, with the variation of the oil samples, is there a specific way that you take a, a sample? Well, there are multiple ways you can take a sample. Um, if you don't have anything installed on the truck that would help you take a sample, for example, the OPS filter has a petcock right on it and you take the sample out of that. That's what it's designed for and you get a good clean sample that way. I've seen, you know, oh, quick okay. disconnect drain plugs or drain plugs that you can actually take a sample out of those. I'm not a big fan of those. Um, the, the, the way we can take a sample if we don't have any of those things um, two ways. One, you can take your sample when you change the oil and you just pull the drain plug, let it run a couple seconds, and then stick a bottle right into the stream as you're draining it. Now, the, the downside okay. to that is how often are you changing your oil? On this truck, it's probably 50 or 60,000 miles recommended, right? Uh, they actually recommended uh, 15000 for this truck. I really don't know why. Who, who recommended that? Uh, it was the people that I bought the truck through um, Nashville Kenworth, actually. Yeah, d but, do uh, not. It, it, do not change the oil every 15,000 miles on it. it, it Pete Leroy isn't an X-15 these days, isn't it? Like 60 or even like 75,000 miles if you use their oil? They go by uh, college, but still like the bottom end is like 50. Yeah, yeah. so at the least it's 50,000 miles between oil changes. Um, I think up to 80. That's and what I the thought. Still under warranty and you sample if you can go up to 80. Um, and of course, if you put the, the, the OPS on there, we know we can take the oil further and still keep it clean. Yeah. And of course, sampling okay. is much easier. So Hal, let, let's just simplify this. Put an OPS on it. 
sample every 25,000 miles and change the oil when the sample tells us to. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And and you may that, find that you'll go one hundred and fifty or two hundred thousand miles without changing oil sometimes. Wow! Look at the money they just. I'm just wasting. Well, <laughs> let's think about this. What have have you done? What does an oil change cost you on this truck wherever you take it? I had one done last week, four forty eight, including the filters. So let's just call it four hundred dollars. I'll I'll be fair here. Um, based on what they told you, changing the oil every 15,000 miles or what we're talking about and going 150,000 miles would not be out of the question. It's not a stretch. We do it all the time. It's really common. In You would spend, if you use our method, now we could go through, that would be uh, in 150,000 miles, that would be six samples. So six samples. Pete, what's a sample kit cost these days? Uh, a sample kit with the mailing label is about 50 bucks. Okay. For a take. So, bucks. you know, we'd be looking at, you know, three or four hundred bucks in cost for the year to do this, maybe a little higher. We could even say a thousand, um, or we could look at well, somewhere between four and $5,000 in oil change cost in one year, based on what they told you. So we could spend four or 500 okay. or we could spend four or 5,000. Which one would you rather do? <laughs> yes. I know. Uh, with the, I would like to say that I go to Pittsburgh, but I don't. I'm I'm working the southeast, Georgia, and everything around Georgia. Uh, is there any place down here that could tell me what I could do to this truck to improve the fuel mileage? I, you know, we can do we can, it here. You know, sell you the part cheap. Yeah. Just have a local shop install them. Yeah, I mean, you can call okay, them, okay. give them your specs, give them your operation. They'll go through all your options, tell you, you know, what you can get part-wise. You order it and then get it installed wherever you want. I got you. Okay. Uh-huh. And even if it turns out one of the things, you know, that would make sense would be a tune. They have remote tuners. So you can just go to a remote tuner and get a Pittsburgh power tune done. I'm about that. Okay. That's great. I'm glad these these uh electronics are beneficial. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, they are. All right. That's uh that's mainly what I wanted to do, just figure out how to get started with uh you know, I yeah. want to change the air filter and and uh so, you know the yeah. you call it uh, so, LPS, right? Yeah, so here's the beauty of this. Call Pittsburgh Power. They can do the OPS for you. They'll get that to you. Um, They can get you the fleet air filters. They can go through other things. And then uh, ultimately, if a tune is part of this, they'll give you a remote tuner near you. Um, You know, it's not out of the question. When we take a a stock truck, um, whatever your current fuel economy is, if we're willing to do all the stuff that's possible on most trucks, we're going to gain somewhere between one and two full miles per gallon. 
And in today's world, that is just huge in cost. Yes, it is. And and fuel is uh, creeping up. I uh, found a place that was 442 yesterday, but the day before uh, the area I was in, the cheapest I found was 479. So you know, it was it, it was dropping in most places for a month or so, and now it seems like it's going to start creeping back up again. Yep. All, All right, well, Hal, I think really you've, you've got a plan there, so uh, let's go with that. Let's head off to Illinois. Brian, welcome to the program. Hello, guys. I had a suggestion about the brake problem that you had with the second or third caller. Okay. I'm wondering if you wasn't having a back feed from the service maxi chamber into the parking brake side of the maxi chamber. And once that air got in there, it wasn't able to release. But the, the, the brake chamber itself was the problem. Hmm. I've had that happen. Were you, were you I don't playing? know. Is that the one on the... Just have, like the... I'm sorry? What one, you mean? Are you saying you're going to well, get the, to the valve? No, no. The, the brake chamber itself. The parking brake in the service brake chamber... Mm-hmm. Both operating off of air, but one one side would bleed into the other side. I've had that happen where a brake chamber go bad. The brake, the the what they call the diaphragm, would leak through to the opposite side, and then that would apply yeah, to brake pressure, and it wouldn't be able to bleed back out. Yeah, that makes sense. I know he's replaced a lot of parts, and I'm not sure if that's one of them, but I hope he's still listening. Yeah, yeah, I don't know that, if I've ever seen a, a I don't know if I've ever seen a bad diaphragm act like that though. It may not be the diaphragm, but it's somehow there's got to be air getting into there when he's applying the brake and it's not releasing. Uh, I, that certainly has to be. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. That's how the brakes get applied through air pressure. So somehow we're getting air pressure into a part of the system where it doesn't belong at that moment. Um, it seemed to me like right. they had addressed. And, and up to that point, I think they're. It seems to me that, that up to that point of the brake chamber itself, the systems are absolutely separate. Well, that's not necessarily true. A, a bad foot valve could cause this. It would still be applying pressure to the brake. Yes. There are several points in that system where air pressure could be diverted to a place that would apply the brakes. The brake chamber could be one of them, but it's certainly not the only one. No, no, I agree with that. That, that, It's just the way he was describing it when he's, even bobtail, if he steps on the brake pedal too hard, then the other one comes on and it doesn't release. That, uh, well, I, wait a minute. I, I maybe I'm. I've seen that wait, where one starts dragging. Wait a minute. Maybe I'm confusing two different stories. I thought he said it never happens when he bobtails. Now, I've heard him say it happened. I thought he said it happened once, but not as often because he's not applying as hard a brake when he's 
bobtail, of course. I must have missed that. Load, I, I, to push on the brake pedal head for you. I, I must That's have missed that. I, I thought That's I heard. That's giving me this idea. I thought I heard him say it never happens to bobtails. That's what I thought as well. We could have both missed it. And I'm wondering yeah, that's if what I happened loaded or unloaded, if that has anything to do with it. We forgot to ask him that question. Yeah, didn't think about well, that's that. Well, that's why when he's... When, it it that's seemed why I thought to with me... The trailer, he's applying more brake to stop than he was without... Yeah, it, it seems to me that this was a trailer issue, that there was something about, and not a specific trailer, but being connected to a trailer was what triggered this. Then that's what right. they call a trailer protection matter, valve. Well, uh, that, trailer that he had on. tractor protection valve, yeah, is one of the components that could cause this. And, you know, it, it, part of the reason why it seems to be, a, it sounded like he had fairly competent people working on it. They replaced a lot of parts that could have yep. been the problem and the problem still exists. So somewhere there's a part we haven't yeah. thought of yet. Well, that's the one I didn't hear. <laughs> yeah. Break chambers. It, and and anyhow, you might be the right. Other, it the could other be issue, the break chamber. Um, the other issue with the, the cutoff frame for a different suspension, I was, I was glad that Paul chimed in. Uh, my first reference person I was thinking of was, Get a hold of Mike Beckett and see which one has the least amount of vibrations. Yeah, like I, I said, know you, you know the, 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 the standard rear end setups, Eaton, the, the, the stuff we've had around forever is pretty straightforward. I, I don't understand pack yeah. car suspension systems because I've never owned them. I mean, I've never had the experience of one. That's why I don't talk about them or recommend them. Uh, if I were doing a cutoff, I'd go with a nice, simple suspension setup. Exactly, exactly. But there's there some that would hold up better than others. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And I would think some vibration issues and alignment issues, you know, I, I would think Mike Beckett would be able to get him Yeah, you, you know, freight, track. freight liners set up over time has that that tendency to, to shift on the axles. So, yeah, yeah. And, and that would be the person who yeah. tends to really stay on top of that kind of stuff would be Mike. And then the last call was about the not being able to afford to pay for his repair bill and they're throwing all these parts at it. I was questioning whether or not that truck might have been struck by lightning. You know, part of the problem with that call was I, I wasn't getting a lot of details on what the truck was doing. I mean, it wasn't like we were getting enough right. information to try to troubleshoot the truck itself because we don't need know that it right. needs to be troubleshot anymore it might Anything. be fixed anymore. they claim it's yes. fixed he doesn't yeah, know agree. whether it's fixed or not because he can't afford to get it out right so really this wasn't yeah, a yeah, maintenance we troubleshooting question this was he's upset that he spent all this money and lost all this time and and now the truck's done but he doesn't know what to do I mean, I only see two options. You right. either figure well, out how to come up with the money to get the truck out of it and go back to work, or you walk away from this thing. Well, and he's been off work for a year already, so he might as well try to look for something else. I, I, really, I, I, I think he should over. walk away from this. That would be my recommendation based on his oh, yes. level of 
experience and knowledge and his financial situation and his health is bad. The last thing he needs to be is in business right now. I agree. Get on with the company. He's got good insurance and make some money. Exactly. There's good money out here to be made. Even at company rates. Yep. Exactly. Start all over. There you go. All right. That's all I had. That's all we need. Thanks for the call. All right. We're at 1030. We're going to wrap this up for the day. Um, Pete, Leroy, anything you guys want to finish with? I do have a question for you as far as taxes go. So okay. mm. customers that, so when, when they come to in, in Pennsylvania, um, if you have your own authority, we can take taxes off. And this is something fairly new from what we understand. And prior to that, you could, if you're leased onto someone, you could use their MC number. PA has just recently changed that. But if they pay their taxes upfront as the work is getting done, at the tax time, they're not owed a bunch of, they don't owe a bunch of money. Wouldn't that make more sense to just pay it as, as you go? I mean, some customers are fine, like, okay, whatever. And other customers just get, like, if you guys, I'm keep that turbo. I don't want it. I'm not paying tax. What? Um, Wait, I'm confused. Oh, yeah. I'm confused. So let's go back and clarify a couple things so the people listening will understand. I I do, but some people might not be. We're talking about sales tax here on parts and and labor. Right? Yes. Okay. So we're not talking about Mm -hmm. income tax. We're talking about sales tax, and we're talking about specific in a state. And Pennsylvania was exactly like Ohio, except now you say they made a change. You could be exempt from paying sales tax on an item because the state considers it a business-to-business transaction, and they don't charge sales tax on business-to-business transactions. The proof they wanted that you are in business was an MC number. And a lot of states will allow you to use your carrier's MC number if you're leased to them. Now, here's the crazy thing. In states like that, the system was so screwed up and broken, you could just pick anybody's MC number and give it to the dealer you're buying the parts from. You didn't even have to be leased to them. Just give them a damn number and then they wouldn't charge you the tax. And that's the end of it. You'd never hear anything about it. I had done it several times in Ohio. Now they're saying, Pennsylvania saying, look, we'll exempt a trucking company, but you have to be the trucking company. You have to have your own authority now. So that gets us up to the point where we are now. But I'm not sure I understood the the question you were asking me. So would it not be better for these guys? So like we had a customer that was just bent out of shape because we said, hey, you got to pay tax. You don't have your own authority. Right. And I think he just declined the part because of that. But what I was getting at is if they pay the tax now, come tax time, isn't it the accountant takes care of that? No, that's not true. Okay. So what you're saying, this is where we have to separate the income tax from the sales tax. So let's say I'm just going to use an easy number. I'm going to use a hundred bucks. Let's say you had a a total of $100 in sales tax. 
if you didn't have to pay the $100 in sales tax because you're exempt, that $100 goes back into your pocket. But if I pay the $100, the IRS isn't going to give me a refund. That's a, the IRS is federal. They're not going to give you a refund of state money because they, that, then that, they lost that money now. The state got their tax money and then the IRS gave it back. That's not going to happen. What does happen is that $100 is tax deductible because you spent it, but you only save about $30 in federal income tax by spending that extra 100 So you are far better off being able to just not pay the sales tax in the first place. Does that make sense? Okay. I, I, yes, it does. And I wasn't aware of that. Okay. I thought it would come out, you know, come out of the wash no. when the accountant did the taxes. No, no, you can't take the deduction on a federal tax return because it was a state tax. You so can take the deduction. Does... I actually said that wrong. You would get the deduction for spending the money, but that's where you save the 30%. What you don't get is Not the 100. credit. The state is saying... We'll credit you that tax. You don't have to pay it at all, but you have to do that at the state level. You can't wait till the end of the year and then get that same advantage at the end of the year from the federal government. Now, so then it, the it's gas possible, taxes, possible, and I don't know this because states do all kinds of weird stuff. It's possible that some state tax return may allow you to claim that credit. I've never heard of that, but it wouldn't be out of the question. That might be a possibility. Okay. So then what about fuel tax? So people will buy fuel in one state because it's cheaper, but then they end up paying tax. Correct. Is that That's, federal? That That is federal. Okay. Well, Technically, fuel tax is state by state, but then the federal government created an agency, IFTA, International Fuel Tax Agreement, that manages all the disbursements between states. So if you paid Pennsylvania too much, you didn't pay Ohio enough, even though those aren't federal taxes, those are state taxes, IFTA manages all that. IFTA will take the extra money you paid Pennsylvania and send it to Ohio for you. And then they'll work out all the states you ran in that quarter. You do this on one report. And then the IFTA department sends all the money around to the different states. And if you still owe some, then you write them a check that quarter. Or if there's a refund, they send you a check that quarter. So they are individual state fuel taxes but we have the IFTA agency that manages all that. Okay. So if we go back, you may even remember this term, Pete. Remember when every truck had a bingo card in it? You remember that? No, I don't. Okay. So don't. we called them bingo cards because it was a, a card with all the states and you would, you know, buy stickers and, and fill in the state and then that registered you for fuel tax in that state. But what you had to do back then was we'll, we'll go to the extreme. Let's say I actually ran in all 48 states. I know there are 50, but 48 down here. 
Um, let's say I ran in all 48 states in the same quarter. Guess how many fuel tax reports I had to fill out? 48. 48. And if I overpaid Pennsylvania, some of those states just would not refund you. And none of them would send any money to another state for you. You had to file an individual report with every state and some states just didn't give refunds. So you got screwed. IFTA fixed all that. Now you file one fuel tax report, you report all your miles in individual states, and you will always get a refund if you've overpaid. Makes it a lot easier. Yes. And since we've been talking about courses today, I actually have a course that teaches you all about IFTA and how to take advantage of this and actually save a couple thousand dollars a year by knowing where to buy your fuel. That would be good to take for sure. There you go. All right. Good topic, though. There's a lot of people that are confused about that. And that state thing, you know, state sales tax, every state can handle that differently. Some states give no exemptions for businesses. Some states give total exemptions for businesses. And you don't even have to have an MC number. You just give them your tax ID number uh, and, and that'll do it. And like I said, even the states that, you know, said you had to have a number. Nobody ever checked to see whose number it was. Right. Yeah, I mean, how would we know if someone's telling us the truth? You don't. If they hand you an MC number and you're the vendor, all you can do is take the MC number, put it in their file, and technically you don't have to charge them tax anymore. Yeah, they signed off on it, not us. Yeah. Yeah, Exactly. All right. Good stuff. We're going to wrap this up. Pete Leroy, thanks as always. We'll do it again next week. I will see you back here tomorrow for Destination Health. No guests this week. I think we we have guests starting back up again next week. We have a lot of guests coming up here in the next couple months. Um, no guests tomorrow. I have a pretty important update on the stress protocol. Something interesting that I just discovered here recently. Um Good news and uh, a little unusual. That's all I'll say. You'll have to tune in tomorrow to find out what that's all about. We'll see you then. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey. <laughs>